Hello, everybody, and thank you all for tuning into the premiere episode of the newest retro pro wrestling podcast out there today. Thank you all for tuning in to Kicking Out at Two. I'm your host, Dave Rosenbluth. For some of you that know me, I'm from the Ken Reedy Show, the best in pro wrestling talk, but... Now I'm branching out on my own a little bit. I'm going to do my own thing and talk the glory days of pro wrestling. For those of you that listened to the pilot episode of the WCW Bash at the Beach 1996 event in watch-along form, thank you all very much. But now you are tuning into the premiere episode, and this week we're going to do a watch-along. But I'm not going to do it alone like I did on the uh, pilot episode of Kicking Out at Two. I'm going to do it with uh, someone very near and dear to my heart as the great... Mean Gene Oakland would say, my dear close personal longtime friend, my youngest brother, Justin Rosenbluth, welcome to the program. Good, good, good to be here. Uh, making dreams come true, you know, not often do you get to sit around, drink beers and press record and watch wrestling, but uh, I get to do it here. So I'm glad to be here and uh, kind of make my debut of sorts out there in the podcast world. So uh, let's tear it up. Glad to have you on board. I wouldn't want anyone else here doing this with you. Justin's probably going to be a regular here on Kicking Out at Two. I'll, of course, have a, a rotating roundtable of guest hosts like Ken Reedy from the Ken Reedy Show, some friends of mine, family, maybe even my wife. You never know what you're going to get with me on Kicking Out at Two. It's going to be a variety show, if you will. And part of that variety, like I said, we're going to do a little bit of a, a watch along here, but this time we're going to do it on the 21-year, or close to 21-year anniversary, I should say, of SummerSlam 1997. We're heading towards the 30th anniversary of SummerSlam coming up on August the 19th, 2018, and uh, we thought it would be uh, appropriate if we gave our thoughts and opinions from a fan perspective, if you will, not internet driven or dirt sheet driven but what we thought watching this back then 21 years ago and this summer slam for me i think is a very underrated summer slam on a number of levels uh justin what do you think about how this summer slam measures up to different summer slams in years past this is uh this is probably a biased opinion um you know as i've you know as you already know about as big a mark for bret hart as there is and you know, Bret Hart was the, at the focal point headlining this show, as well as the Hart Foundation, the new Hart Foundation, being essentially the, the, what the show was built around um, and everything they had going on that summer. Um, so I think, to me, this one stands up with some of the best. You know, going on 30, I would put this definitely in, uh, in the top five for sure. Um, but again, uh, it was just really cool for me watching this show and, it, you know, being an active... Uh, WWF fan to see this entire summer culminate with an event that was centered so deeply around the Hart family, the Hart Foundation, Canadian wrestling, all of those things that are combined. And uh, again, that's coming off the, the Calgary Stampede the month prior. But again, to see it all kind of come here and you know get my man Bret Hart the big belt for the fifth time that was uh, that was a big deal. Still you, is. You bring up a great point about the culmination of this event and this whole summer that kind of started after WrestleMania in the, in the springtime with Bret Hart and how he formed the Hart Foundation. What I love about this storyline is that it, it divided the fan base geographically. It wasn't about like good guys and bad guys. It was about morals and geographically the canadians were obviously behind bret hart and bret hart could do no wrong but the united states on the other hand thought that bret hart was a disgruntled bitter uh angry 
Crybaby. Yeah, Crybaby. Yeah, the it, one it, that it, I heard a lot. Yeah, we heard. We, yeah, you're exactly right. Crybaby, and they didn't take too kindly to Brett changing his ways, and and they thought he turned their back on them, and they, and Brett thought the American fans turned their back on him, and just the way that you know wrestling fans from Canada and the United States were so divided. I just thought it was something that was ahead of its time. And something that we kind of see today in today's landscape and not geographically in the sense that, you know, countries of wrestling fans are at war with each other. But you see with Roman Reigns and WWE geographically in some instances, uh, wrestling fans treating him differently up north in the northeast here in Connecticut, in the New York area. uh, He's they don't like him at all. <laughs> let's just let's just be honest. They don't like him at all. We're but, very nice of you. <laughs> but yeah, I'll be I'll, I'll be nice because I am a Roman Reigns guy. I love Reigns. Oh, I know yeah. you are too. And but down south, if you were to wrestle in Columbia, South Carolina, Nashville, Tennessee, Mobile, Alabama, Southern wrestling fans are very conditioned and old school in a way that they cheer the good guys and they boo the bad guys. And Reigns is more accepted in southern wrestling circles at least as far as i can tell by watching it on the on the screen so i i would like to think that the heart foundation canada usa storyline in 97 uh was ahead of its time but also kind of mirrors in some ways what we see today especially with the roman reigns and i'll certainly agree with you on that um i have no piece of paper to agree to to psychoanalyze us as a people but you know by by um by just who we are as humans, we're very tribal people. So, you know, you see it in all avenues and we don't have to go down those roads. This is a fun podcast, but we are, we, we, we cling to what we are familiar with, what we, um, what we res- what resonates with us and what we relate to. And, and that kind of puts us in our places. And a lot of that is geographics. A lot of it's cultural, a lot of it's, um, again, how you're, how you're brought up and raised. And, um, that's kind of how these ba- battle lines were drawn under the guise of, of a uh, USA versus the world, because, you know, Bret Hart was, outside of the United States, probably as big a star there's ever been in professional wrestling. Yeah, um, I would have to agree. And, you know, again, you go back to SummerSlam 92. His, you know, he was the real star there, despite Davy Boy Smith being the hometown hero in London. But, again, we're going back to the original point. This is, you know, you, it's, you weren't forced to pick a side because the sides were already picked. You know, you're Team USA. You're, you're from this country. You, uh, you rooted for... Stone Cold Steve Austin, Shawn Michaels, The Undertaker. If you were a team, everyone else, Canada particularly, it was the Heart Foundation walked on water. And being someone who lived in, who lives in America, from America, you know, I was an outlier in that. I still believe those guys walk on water. So, um, again, you know, I, as a mark of Bret Hart, uh, believed everything he preached that got us to this point as far as the fans turning their backs on him. And, you know, he practiced... Being the hitman and it, you know his moral code to the point where it made people sick, and that's when they decided to run the other way in America, at least. Yeah, awesome, awesome, very good stuff. All right, for those of you that are listening right now, head on over to WWE Network if you're not already logged on, and go to the pay-per-views section and search WWE pay-per-views. Go to the year 1997, and you will find. SummerSlam, August the 3rd, 1997, from the Continental Airlines Arena in lovely East Rutherford, New Jersey. You'll see the picture of uh, Brett and Undertaker on... Uh, you know, that award there, that that, um, that arena there, sorry to cut you off there. No, no, uh, sorry. We, uh, we collectively, along with, uh, what, maybe 20,000 other people, we won our Slammy Award. 
which I'm still waiting for in the mail, by the way. Yeah, yeah, for uh, yeah. the craziest fans, the the WrestleMania Monday after was it WrestleMania 29? 29, so correct. It was, um, so yeah, you're talking to some Slammy Award winners. I know you got some podcast champions out there and and such, but you got some Slammy Award winners here that you uh, that you're going to be hearing about. We're, we're coming home to to the Continental Era Airlines Arena here. We're all <laughs> where it all began. There you go. There you go. All right. So fire up that WWE Network, and I'll give you the countdown. In three, two, one, play. And something interesting about this this pay-per-view, and it goes along with what we discussed in the open about the, uh, the, the geographical split with some of the wrestling fans, that they opened this pay-per-view with the National Anthem, which you didn't see a whole lot during... Um, during uh, wrestling pay-per-views you saw like america the beautiful obviously for wrestlemania but because of the way this storyline had um divided a lot of wrestling fans uh from canada and the united states uh i thought this was rather interesting that they opened this pay-per-view with all the events he just loves america right now with that butt chin right there Jeez, he should probably put his hand on his chest not his abdomen i know he's got a lot of cut up abs there you know you ask you know those out there about them they need to bring the stridex blimp back i will say you saw a shot of the stridex oh, blimp up there stridex right now it's been it's a hot one here <laughs> audience's uh approval of america of, oh we uh, missed the dude love guy in the front that's right oh, the dude love the, guy and here is the uh the standard uh signature the signature the world wrestling federation what do they call that in the tv the tv air uh they, these bumpers uh, no, they're called signatures. Signatures? Okay. Bumpers are in between commercials, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I loved the voiceovers for these opens on the pay-per-views when they did, like, the, the highlight packages, black and white, like this. There you go, Brett. Uh, pull out the belt. That's right. And there we go. He's just Look at all those fans. They all turned their back on him. But look at him just strutting his stuff. Classic shot of the hitman. And looking in rather disgust. Of the United States, but Stanley, cry baby. Yep, that's the, yeah, the the term. Look how close the fans are, like hanging over the ramp. You don't see that now, but no, like no, back no. then, like you could practically like hop the rail and you'd be on the ramp, which was interesting. Paul Bear, Paul Bear and the Undertaker. Oh, yeah. And then yeah, the the boom. He used to do that one. I miss that when he obviously brings the lights up. It's always been a part of. His I think it's in. I think it was in this match with he Brett. Does like, he does like the quick one. Yeah. And here he kind of stopped doing that. I think they gave that gimmick to Kane, obviously. But yeah, with Michael's dancing around, adding the fire. Boy, I'll dream. <laughs> Tell me a lie. Yeah. Right. That was such an awful music video. I just watched that recently on YouTube. The music video. The music video when after he had. Uh, he had uh, gotten beat up by the Marines in Syracuse, and they made that music video. Well, that's what happened. I thought he got, like, his knee injured, you know, like Dean Douglas and all those I guys. I think – oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's right. I forgot. Yeah. We're, 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 uh, we're living in a kayfabe world here on Kicking Out It too. Well, again, more and more glitz and glamour, some, some Shawn Michaels posery and a little hockey fight from the Canadian Brett. Boom. Super kick right into the – Right I always marveled at that, like – Man, they had to lay some spike tape down for that one. Get him to sit right back down in the chair. You know what was interesting about that? That's super. I remember watching that episode of Raw as a kid, and they didn't even show that. that yeah, I know. That's always been part of like the whole heat the two have in. And SummerSlam, heart and soul. 
presented by Stridex. Yeah, like I said, somebody's got to bring that stuff back, seriously. Or the blimp. Just the blimp, at, yeah, at the yeah. very I mean, least. And, yeah, yeah. Stridex. You could put whatever on the blimp. I don't care. You know, if it's Blue Chew or... <laughs> and they got the fireworks here. They got the... They got this... What's that? What do they call it? The salad steel cage? The salad steel cage. The toss salad steel cage is a... Is, uh, folks over bars. I wish they like brought that back like they did like an old school raw episode and they did a cage match and they did that, that oh I love the blue steel cage that, yeah, I mean they painted it black my childhood ended yeah when did they when they did that a couple years after this they... I feel like the first one was um was it the Vince Austin cage match yeah and it was like it's black yeah I, I details like that you remember remember when we went to uh, Wrestlemania Access a few years ago in New Orleans and uh they actually had a piece of the cage that was kind of like in like yep. the uh, the Hall of Fame like you know walkthrough or whatever. Man, look at this Hall of Fame squad here: Jr., the King, Vince McMahon, the announcer, because we he, he doesn't own the company. He didn't own the company at all. I wonder who they would say owned the company. It would be Jack Tunney, but Jack Tunney wasn't around either. So. Jack Tunney was gone after this, I believe. At this time, uh, they were in transition. Actually, the night after this, the night after this pay per view, they had announced a new commit. That's when they introduced Sergeant, Sergeant Slaughter. Slaughter. But Gorilla Monsoon was the fig the uh, yeah. television figurehead. Be best figurehead, in my opinion. I didn't grow up on Jack Tunney. So what's this first match here? Triple H, Hunter Hearst Helmsley, yeah. along with China, to take on Mankind. Underrated feud. I was just talking about this with a guy at work the other day. Um, underrated feud. They, they fought the prior month at Calgary Stampede. I, we, they also fought the King of the Ring. The finals, yes. Yep, when Hunter won, he bashed him with the crown, which to me was like, you know, you always like envision a King of the Ring winner, like they throw the crown on and the robe, and you're like, yeah, they're a King of the Ring, that's for sure. But that guy, he just took the times changed. It became a weapon at that point. Yeah, I was, you know, as a kid, didn't, I, didn't parade the gimmick around afterwards. Yeah, as a kid, I always like questioned why guys didn't wear the. You know, you won the tournament, you obviously wanted to win to 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 gain some kind of you know prestige and and uh and and soak in the adulation but why wouldn't you want to walk around wearing wearing the crown and the, and the and the robe and the and, and holding the scepter i mean austin obviously didn't do it the year prior but brett got beat up and lawler broke his crown the, the guy who really you know in this era that really embellished that king character was owen hart you know he would yeah, wear he would wear the arts. crown and the and the robe after he had won the tournament. He was proud that he was the king of the ring. I felt like in some ways guys that that did it and uh, like a, like a hunter and uh, Shamrock the following year like they didn't touch a crown or yeah. or a robe or a scepter like it was and then it became a trophy at one point I think yeah. too right. Um, I believe so, but I think again that's a sign of the times too. Like yeah. Do people walk around in crowns and robes every day? I mean, outside of like a Comic Con, no. Like, or Jerry Lawler that was, you know, doing commentary with Vince. Yeah, that's his gimmick, man. Maybe, maybe he stepped in and was like, guys, listen. Yeah. <laughs> this is my deal. Yeah, I've kind of cornered the market on, uh, like you know, King stuff. Yeah, looking like, uh, you know, Knights at the Round Table. So he <laughs> could you kind of hold off on wearing the crown and the yeah. cape? And then, you know what? It's funny because I was going to say this before, but like, I kind of miss that little like entrance setup that they have where it's like in the corner tunnel of the arena and it's just a very basic look, you know yep. what I mean? And it gives you the long kind of roundabout like L-shaped entrance of sorts or yeah. D-shaped maybe. Because it's too generic and standard now where like the guys straight come away. out the same time straight away. And I've always wondered too, like nowadays, and it, it, it switched up, but for the most part, if you, if you look at the hard camera, um, if you're staring at the hard camera from home at, at the ring, the entryway is on your left. 
guys come out from the left side of your television screen. It's very rare that guys will come out from the right side of your television screen. I don't know if that's something that you, uh, I don't know why exactly that, that, that they do that. Maybe that's something you might um, be familiar with. You know, it, it probably is a situational basis as far as, you know, where they can sell tickets, fill seats, how how things look, you know, on a dry run with a camera setting it up, you know, mm-hmm. speaking with the most minimal amount of experience. Um, and then you probably want familiarity, you know, as a viewer. Yeah. You know, while you do want to kind of keep the viewer on their toes, you also want them to be comfortable. There are a lot of uh, aspects of a, uh, of, of, a, of a presentation on television or a movie for that matter that that draw in certain emotions that they want you to have to engulf yourself into a, a, a presentation. So actually, here we go. He's trying to get out right now. Triple H. Ding, ding, ding. That I always thought was the, like, you don't see enough of this anymore in cage matches where it's just, I want to get the heck out of there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Too many times now it's the cage match where it's, you know, they want to keep the, the bad guy from getting their, their, their heat seekers to help them win or, where it's a pinfall type deal. Yeah. Like to me, a real cage match is the guy who can get out and you know survive and walk out or crawl out. I think good psychology in that sense from Triple H. I still think with with cage matches for me as a fan now, um, and it's not because the 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 content is rated PG, but cage matches to me are essentially like you know bounce house like 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 going in your backyard and renting a bounce house at a birthday party like the cage matches nowadays just don't really have that suspense cage matches used to be the big blow-off matches for guys uh but nowadays like it's just a filler match i think other concepts like elimination chamber and hell in the cell kind of i wouldn't say ruin that but they uh they they kind of well, yeah, I'll say it. Yeah, it did ruin the cage match because I always loved steel cage matches, especially especially this match here. This is a you said underrated feud. I think this is an underrated cage match uh, from this era. But I just I don't know. I'm not like I don't get into steel cage matches nowadays like I used to, and I think it's got a lot to do with the the other uh, gimmick matches like Hell in the Cell and Elimination Chamber that have kind of um, up the intensity. Um, I think there's some truth to that. I think too, you, you look at like, you, you, again, like you said, the, the, the hell in a cell aspect, that's like the new blow off. You know yep. what I mean? So, you know, I think, I mean, I've been to plenty, we've been to plenty of house shows where like, this is the feature match. So yep. I think there's still that old school, like, well, like, we got to sell tickets. Let's put them in a cage. Yeah. So, you know, you go to Madison Square Garden, you go to Hartford, Connecticut, you go wherever. Yep. You know, and even if it's a non-televised event, you know, you put your top two guys in the cage and that's, that's kind of how it works. Uh, I recall our, our first foray into Madison Square Garden. Uh, it, to me, one of the best cage matches I've ever seen, John Cena and Wade Barrett. Um, you know, only the, the very few people that were in the arena that night saw it, but I would imagine that the the match quality of those on a live event tour is off the charts. Um, but here again, definitely, definitely a very underrated cage match for sure. And, you know, still got mankind in his, his gear here is going for the, the mandible claw pretty early here. Yeah, that was, uh, that's enough you know, underrated cage match an underrated move. I guess if you want to call that a wrestling move, uh, 
think about it for a minute here. Somebody jamming their fingers down your throat. You know what I mean? Like it's it's become in some ways um, a comedy spot in wrestling nowadays where he puts the sock on if he does make an appearance. But, you know, with the way his character was during this time frame and how he was kind of morphing from the Hannibal Lecter type to the like cuddly teddy bear and he was kind of making a transition within the last year from this point forward the move went from being like in my opinion as a fan watching it very dangerous to very comical um definitely um i've always said too and i've always been a big fan of of all the faces of foley um and i my you know my first memories of of mick foley were his w oh a punch to the butthole Think about that for a minute here. She just punched him in his butthole. Hey, whatever works, you know. But um, <laughs> sorry to interrupt. I just no, 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 no. It's fine. Um, even as a kid, I was like, she punched him in his butt. You know what? And he was a victim, a glutton almost for that type of punch. <laughs> you know, yeah, he got thrown off cages, but like, there had to be he he had a thing for getting getting hit down there underneath and all the under parts of that area. Um, took a serious beating, much like the rest of his body did, for sure. I always thought that Mankind was so legit from the day he walked in because he feuded with The Undertaker, which is no joke. No. And Undertaker that time, you know, he was he was the giant killer. You know, Giant Gonzalez, King Kong Bundy, Diesel. And then you have this average-looking, doughy, weirdo guy. Not big. You know, he's just a normal-looking dude, and he just... He took The Undertaker down on his first night, and as a kid, I was like, wow, like, this dude's legit. And again, visually speaking, he's not big, he's not very, you know, physically imposing, but a move like the Mandible Claw, like, shoving, the, shoving his fingers down The Undertaker's throat, and then, again, it's like he's basically gagging him. And, you know, those guys sell it well, you know, some, you know, the phlegm, whether that was work phlegm or shoot phlegm <laughs> or you know whatever they had to make that look more badass it it certainly worked because again mankind was the foil to the undertaker at that point and it you know carried on for years at that point afterwards i'm kind of glad glad i'm kind of glad you brought that up uh his debut and how he just kind of had his way with the undertaker uh being a you know being a few years older than you and watching wrestling a little bit longer than you i was a big cactus jack fan okay i was especially the stuff he did in wcw uh i was not what drew me to cactus jack and and mick foley in general before he came to the wwf was how tough he was and i'll hearken this back to an episode of wcw saturday night where cactus was wrestling vader in a match late vader god rest his soul and i don't remember exactly what what happened at the end of the match but the action had spilled to the outside of the floor and this was at the time when they were filming at center stage in atlanta there was no mats around the ring and vader watts back then yeah bill watts yeah <laughs> bill watts the same guy who uh used to show up to the office in cnn tower in uh, cowboy boots zubaz pants harley davidson uh, t-shirt and packing a gun but uh that's another story for another time 
But Cactus and Vader were out on the floor brawling and beating the shit out of each other. And Vader picked him up and he power bombed the shit out of Cactus on the cold concrete. As cliche as that sounds, it's the truth. And I just remember as a kid watching and I felt the thud that hit the, the you know, with his body hitting the floor, I felt that in my chest. <laughs> and that was, and then they had like medics and referees and officials come out, tend to him. I even, if I go back and remember, I'll have to try and find it on the WWE Network. I even think Vader kind of showed a little bit of concern. And that was like the first point for me as a fan where I was like, even though I knew it was predetermined, and, and, and scripted I was like oh wow like he's really hurt like something really bad happened and that's where I kind of gained the respect for him as a wrestler because of how tough he was and the beating that he took from Vader and then they totally fucked that whole story up by making him homeless in Cleveland and he was lost and you know shit like that and they, they had that great Texas death match at the 93 Halloween Havoc but that to me like you know was the epitome of Mick Foley for me. So when now let me circle it back. Cause I kind of went, a, went a little long here. He debuts, he attacks undertaker. And as a fan, I was like, that's not the, that's not the guy I remember. Like I, I wasn't, it took me a while to warm up to mankind. Let's just say, cause I was a big cactus Jack fan. I thought that the cactus Jack character, if it were to had come to WWF in 1996, I think it would have had, um, I don't think it would have had as big of an impact as, as the mankind debut in hindsight. But I think if he had done the same thing to undertaker as cactus Jack, I still think it would have been pretty good. Um, as you say that, I'm like, wow, like, just imagine the promos that guy could cut, you know, harken back to his ECW stuff that's, like, legendary, like, yeah, I mean, take the mask off and you can kind of see that emotion more so, absolutely, I, I couldn't agree more in that sense, but, you know, as I think history has kind of shown us, you know, WWE puts their dust on it, they put their creation into it and make it their own, and it's really hard to argue the success of it, especially with a guy like Mick Foley, because, you know, you look at these two guys here at this stage, they're, they're up and comers. You know what I mean? They're on the rise. And, you know, people talk about the attitude here and they talk about Austin and the rock. And to me, right behind those two is Mick Foley, you know, even, even, bef even over triple H and in many ways, just based on the specialization of the undertaker, I think he's ahead of the undertaker as far as a star in the attitude era, best-selling author, you know, being thrown off that cage at the Hell in a Cell and King of the Ring. You know, Mick Foley was a superstar, um, you know, which made it really cool to see him get in the Hall of Fame back in 2013 because, you know, while he wasn't the headliner, you know, he was worthy of that distinction. And to do it in Madison Square Garden, um, yeah, he deserved it all for sure. And again, just that's just that's just a credit to Mick Foley and how much of an impact he made on the industry. Absolutely. I mean, I, I I will disagree with you in terms of bigger star than Undertaker because I think, um, I think Undertaker was a because he was such a constant at the time, and he had gone from different eras and uh, you know being the coming in in ninety in nineteen ninety and surviving you know five six years prior to that through a different through different eras like with Brett and Sean and Hogan and all those big names that um, I feel like the stardom that he built 
during those early days really helped cement his spot as a huge star during the Attitude Era. Don't get me wrong, Foley, Mick Foley, Mankind, whatever incarnation that he brought to the WWF, he was a huge star and in the top five, in my opinion. But I don't think he was as big as Undertaker. I think he was close. If you want to, you know, name off, you know, in order, Rock Austin, you know, maybe they could bounce back. Austin, man. You know, Austin one, Rock two, maybe. Foley, definitely. You know, Taker three, Mick Foley four, maybe Triple H five, or even Kane. Kane's another name you could throw in there. Um, but. That's just me personally. Well, I mean, we can, we, can, we can go back and forth on this you all know, day long. You know, while we sit here and, 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 and create our own little list, like, where do we put Vince in that list, though? Because think about yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to me, while I'm a Bret Hart mark, as I said in the beginning, and, you know, Shawn Michaels was right behind in that all-time favorite list, and they had their legendary real-life, you know, on-screen rivalry, you know, I'll, it's hard to argue that Austin and McMahon is not the greatest rivalry in the history of the business. Um... So, you know, I guess it depends. You know, everyone's got their little Mount Rushmore's and their rankings. And, you know, that's that's certainly an interesting debate to have. Do you have – do you do you put Vince on that list? But, um, you know. He was such an integral part of the program, especially with Austin. I don't see why not. I mean, just because he was the owner and he didn't wrestle regularly doesn't mean that, you know, his contributions – to the product you know can't be recognized among the rest of those guys here as we see triple h hung up in between the second and top it's, rope foot's all tangled you don't see that spot anymore no you don't and, you, and look it, it's just so damn hard for him to get out of that like it's just like a vice grip between these two oh trademark china with the door slam on mick that's probably the reason why they don't do the <laughs> the big blue steel cages anymore is because of spots like that. That legitimately... Jimmy Cordero's getting the... Hit the right in the noggin. Yeah, right in the steel steps. When they do it now with the with the chain link fence, I mean, it's, it's more forgiving and uh, for the talent to take that spot. But that right there, those bars, uh, you know, her delivering that, that you know, swinging that door into his head, like, that's... Now, hold that, on. that doesn't age well. Let me ask you this. He, she just laid out the ref, right? Yep. And then she goes and climbs the cage to toss him a chair. Why wouldn't she just get in the ring and, and help him out? Why wouldn't she? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, she opened the door. There's no, there's no rules. It's, the refs, you know, like, what are they doing? Get it, like, walk out the door. They're just there to raise the hand of the winner you know, at the, the end of the day. The bad guys. Oh. The bad guys never were the smartest. No, and that's why... They were bad guys. Yeah. We did a show on the Ken Reedy show where we did a, uh, a, a naughty list for, you know, cr- Christmas time last year. And Ken was telling a story about a guy that he was training with. And they were talking about um, the, the, the logic around a good bad guy and the, the dynamic between good guys and bad guys in wrestling and I don't remember the quote exactly Ken said, but he basically, from what he described in his interaction with this wrestler that he was training with, he had said that the bad guy, um, the reason why the bad guys cheat and do what they do is because the good guys are better wrestlers than them, which I, which I found very interesting because some people have different views on what a good bad guy in wrestling is people within the business, people outside of the business like us. But 
I found that to be within the context of the story and the storytelling in pro wrestling. I found that very, very interesting. And, and I, I kind of, now that I've heard that I will watch when I watch wrestling and I see a guy cheat, I almost think to myself, like, is, is the story they're telling, is that guy trying to cheat because he knows that the good guy can beat him? You know what I mean? Like, it, yeah, and it's funny you say that now because Mankind literally could have just dropped off the cage here and won the damn match, but uh, he's having his little superfly moment where he's climbing back up the cage so he can drop some serious heat onto Triple H when, logically speaking, man... He should have dropped his feet. Yeah, yeah he'll win. And uh, he just took the mask off. He's ripping the shirt here, you know, and superfly. Boom. He just threw an elbow, not the superfly, but the crowd went nuts for it. Um... And I, you know, I remember the, the whole Don Morocco Snuka thing was very much part of this part of the of mankind's career because they were starting to make him more of a person. They were starting to make him more relatable. And yep. how Mick Foley hitchhiked nine different ways from East Jabippi to get to to get to Madison Square Garden to see that match. And everyone in the business went to go see that match. If you talk, I was to actually there too. <laughs> I wasn't even born yet, and I was there. I think Bubba Ray Dudley, Tommy Dreamer yeah. were there. Yeah, it was fun. I think I Virgil was selling meat sauce up at the up in the concession stands for fuck money. Oh, my God, yeah. And, look, China's dragging him out. And then, like, yeah, they do the race against time here, and his feet hit first, and victory. There you back. have it. Um, but Fun match to open SummerSlam, and that was something different, too, at the time. Cage matches were always, like, main events or second-to-last match. This was the first match on the card, which I thought was very interesting at that time. Yeah, and I know we're not going to be able to hear it here on the watch-along, but as he lay there uh, soaking in the, the, the victory, the Dude Love character is going to kind of come to life a little. I know the music kind of hits right, and he kind of starts like... Tapping his foot. Yeah. He'll, he'll show a close-up of the foot. Second. He's kind of gyrating now. Smirk and, and he kind of comes to life a little bit. And again, a, 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 an interesting way to kind of introduce that character as a more of an active character um and yeah he's kind of just laying there now and i think they're gonna show the foot come on camera guy it's taking you so long god damn it it's probably us yeah um yeah he's kind of shot our wide two hook up there it is here and they, the camera guy's like oh my god oh. look at this and he's yeah he just kind of just the dude is coming to life yeah uh yeah he's like laying there like and boom, all those injuries, gone. What did you think of Dude Love? Both good guy and bad guy. I thought Dude Love was awesome. Yeah? Um, I thought he was I thought he was better than Mankind. That's just me. I know, historically speaking, that doesn't, that doesn't resonate. It doesn't land too well. But, mm-hmm. um, again, a very relatable person, Mick Foley. That's what a lot of those vignettes showed. And yeah. Mick Foley could be your neighbor, man. You know? Yep. Picking up the kids, dropping them off. You know, sweatpants and you know sneakers, just doing life, man. Mister Blue Collar. You know, not a not a not easy on the eyes for sure. Nope. And you know, there's always that idea of like who you see yourself to be, and then who the rest of the world sees you as. And he saw himself as someone who wanted to be cool, maybe cooler than the, how the rest of the world saw him, and that's where he envisioned the dude love character. So it was really cool to kind of see that come to life and kind of have him kind of cosplay that out there in the industry. And so seeing dude love eventually show up, you know, in the future, I thought was really cool to see for sure, because it was, it was a guy who 
could pretend to be something he's not for a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great point you bring up, uh, especially when the dude love character was kind of introduced before this portion in those interviews with Jim Ross, and he had kind of the taken that dude love character yeah. and uh, uh, you know uh, formed it from Shawn Michaels. He wanted to, he wanted to be Shawn. Um, yeah, that was probably the best comparison. Yeah, everyone at that time. Shawn Michaels, you know what I mean? Todd Patton. Nobody wants to be him. No, uh, I no. miss that dude. Come on, him and Sean Mooney need to come back. You know, slay out these other people back there. These other stick people. Todd Pengale was a legend. We did a watch along on the Ken Reedy show uh, fourth, for Fourth of July, and we covered the uh, the the Monday Night Raw episode that highlighted the uh, Lex Luger slamming Yokozuna on the USS Intrepid, and they cut to Pengale during one portion of it, and uh, the. I could I could feel the steam coming out of Ken's ears through <laughs> through my headset uh, as he was describing his disdain for, for for Todd Pettengill. I thought he was a little zany and a little. I mean, you grew up on him. Yeah. That was like your, you know, your guy there. But uh, just like I did with you know, in some ways, Sean Mooney, Mean Gene Okerlund, names yeah. like that. Well, but it's it's so to kind of move this to kind of get this where we are. If I remember this correctly. This was was this the the sweepstakes the the million nope. dollars. This was the I announcement mean, that they apparently the uh, the legislative structure within the government in the state of New Jersey uh, put a tax on wrestling and entertainment, not allowing them to uh, perform in the state. Or if they did, like Crusher Christy Whitman, Christy Todd Whitman, yeah, the, or otherwise they would. Uh, they, if they did want to perform, like it would just cost an absorbent amount of money for WWF now, at the time to go there. That's that's one of those hallmark moments I think where people say like kayfabe died. Like that's when Vince first said like, oh well, we're not a real sport. Yep. Right? Yeah. The whole this, you know we're sports entertainment. Yeah. I always I remember it. I could see at the bottom of the screen there, Gorilla's holding the a chant, the Winged Eagle belt, which I think I will one day get my hands on. Yeah. As my own, but because um, it's the Bret Hart belt. Yeah. Let's be real. Um, and he gives it to her, and I remember watching this going, God, I want one of those. <laughs> yeah. like, I got to be governor to get one of those? Yeah. Like, geez. That you, your belt is this belt. My belt is the uh, – as much as I love this belt, don't get me wrong, I, I wouldn't mind getting this as well, but my belt is probably the the Hogan 87, the one he wore at WrestleMania three okay, when he – uh, you know, I've been looking on eBay for like replicas or yeah. they're close to it and they're decently priced for, for, you know, replica championship belts. But if I ever, if there was any one belt that I want, eventually I'll get the Hogan 87. Yeah, they just, they gave her the belt. They probably made the announcement like, yep, wrestling comes back to New Jersey. And who said, who thought the headbangers were a good idea for someone to put out there? Like that's a pay-per-view payday going to the headbangers for what? Who just thought the headbangers were a good idea in general? I mean, you know, but the headbangers weren't bad. They were like the new bushwhackers. You know, what that's I mean? a good point. Yeah, they were that's like, a good point. Oh, this is a, so. So, would you yeah. say that like the B team or Mojo Raleigh are the new headbangers in today's era? Well, we can get we can get to Mojo at another time. <laughs> um, I, but I can't stand him. But um, if you want to, we'll address it. But uh, well, the B team would definitely do that. And okay, those guys have that the chops to do more. Yeah, you know what? Draw back a little bit, have some fun, throw a throw a, a Bray Wyatt beard on and, you know, chomp at your teeth and all that, you know, broken brilliance. Do that. Have fun with it. Um, those guys are 
talented as all hell. Tiger Ali Singh. And I just kind of just, that was a drastic pivot. And then Papa Duke's Tiger Jeet. Um, you know, I, as a kid, you didn't know who these guys were or like the lineage. And you, I know more now about it. But at the time, I was like, wow, these guys were a big deal, huh? Front row. And then he amounted to pretty much nothing. Yeah, well... He was the manager for Headbanger Mosh and D'Lo Brown as Lowdown, if you remember that. I, the Lowdown. I don't remember that. The spot where Drew Carey in the 2001 Royal Rumble took... Yep. Mr. Not McMahon, sure, who's, this, uh, who's this individual that uh, you're going to replace one of my guys with? And he says, Drew Carey. He goes, who's Drew Curry? Yeah. <laughs> I'll never forget it. I would have liked to have been part of one of these. These little, like, you know, barbecue kind of, you know... Deals I, there. You know what? Having gone to, like, you know, the, all the WrestleManias that I've gone to, some years, you, I think it's a local thing. I don't think even think the WWE puts these on. Mm-hmm. But, like, I remember going to a tailgate party. Well, I went to one this past year in New Orleans, put on by a group. They're called the Mania Club. Uh, they they raise money for, for Connors. Yes, store. I heard about that. Um, Ken was talking to me about really that. It was really cool. Ken yeah. brought me onto it. And yep. we went, and you there was food there. You bought a ticket. It all went to the cause. And, um, that was just independent of WWE. Um, I went to, we went to one in San Jose outside of the Santa Clara stadium. Uh, same idea. Yep. Um, just buy a ticket, drink some beers, have some fun and then go into the show. So I wish they did more of those in general. Um, cause you know, wrestling brings people together and you know, why not do what we're doing now? But you know, outside, yeah, Shit, let's do an outside podcast. That would be pretty cool doing an outside podcast at a tailgate. Maybe someday we'll get there. You know, obviously this is the premiere episode. You got to walk before you can run, but at kicking out at two, uh, we'll, we'll make it a point right, to get so there someday. We definitely have to get to this match. The one of the major stipulation matches of this um, the SummerSlam Pillman, the loose cannon, Brian Pillman and Goldust. Uh, with Pillman losing, if he loses, he uh, he has to wear a dress. Uh, it's a classic angle, but. I mean, this was this was done magnificently. I loved Marlena as a kid. She was as uh, Conrad Thompson likes to say, "Roll Tide," and Bruce Pritchard likes to say, "You know, live and in living color." But she was all the way live for me as a kid in 1997. Right. We'll, let that, we'll try that on for size. Um, and you know what? This was like I. We were just talking about Mankind and how they kind of made that character a little more personal. Same thing Goldust. They were doing that with Goldust. Yep. They were, you know, letting us know who his dad was, Dusty Rhodes, yep. and all that stuff. And you know what? I didn't really dig it. That's just me. I thought it was, you know, he kind of he kind of peaked the year before with Piper. Um, so I didn't. I wasn't feeling this one. And again, being you know, being a Heart Foundation mark, you know, Pillman was my man, and. This was like he had, you know, been in and out of his injuries and personal issues. Like this was a one of his big feature matches uh, yeah. back. Yeah, he didn't do a whole lot in his WWF run, which you know was unfortunate due to the the injuries and the personal issues. But I'm kind of there with you as far as Goldust goes at this time. I wasn't uh, I wasn't a big fan of the the good guy Goldust and trying to have his character relate to the audience. But here's and you might find this weird, and maybe this is just me being an old curmudgeon, but. Uh, my, I was conditioned at a young age to think that guys like gold that, that looked like gold dust or that looked like freaks or whatever were bad guys. And I just couldn't picture people liking at, in 1997 at, at, at 14 years old. I couldn't picture people 
liking Goldust just based on the way he looked. I didn't really see him as like a good guy. Maybe I was too conditioned to seeing what good guys and bad guys were from 10 or so years prior. But back in 97, I didn't get into him not because of the story. I didn't get into him as a good guy because... I just looked at him. I was like, "Why would people want to cheer someone that looks like this?" And that's just me. Um, there, I don't. I, I can't say I fell into that category, honestly. Given you know, I know the word that's been thrown around for Goldust, at least out of the the mouth of Vince McMahon, was androgynous. Yep. Which I don't think I've ever heard anyone ever say that word. That's before. the only time I've ever, ever. heard someone say that um, word. <laughs> but to me, when from the moment I saw him, you know, till you know, essentially this point, like it hit at his you know peak, man. I didn't know what to think. You know what I mean? I didn't, I for sure didn't like him, but I didn't for sure hate him either. I was very much like, again, so far ahead of its time. It was like, well, like, what is this? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the guy, you know, and you don't really know at my age too, like the, you know, what they're trying to let you know about, you know, the, the homoerotic stuff. You don't really think of that in a, in a, in an adult way. You think of that in a weird way. Yep. That's weird. Why would you shove your hands on a guy's pants? Why would you kiss a guy? Yeah. You know, you grow up and you realize, all right, that's what they were doing. Yeah. But um, yeah. at the time, you're like, that's that's just weird. Yeah. Like, <laughs> oh no, I'm I, I'm right there um, with you. I, I, I'm only a few years older than you, and it, it, trust me, I was. I thought that stuff was weird too. You know. Um. So with that being said, oh, nice, nice little spot there. Um. I don't. I can't say that like. I was just dying to see that guy get his ass kicked. Mm-hmm. Um, there was certainly a lot of layers to it. I think for most fans that we couldn't get to, we couldn't get to. Um, and I think this was their attempt to go. You know what? We did all the stuff with him outside the Oscars, and you know the OJ chase, you know, and and all that. And I, you know, this naturally they just had to change the direction a little bit. So you can't really fault him for that. It's just. No, no, no. Again, I, given I what you saw first, you're like, eh, this guy has a dad. Well, it, I mean, he's married. I'm kind of, I'm kind of on that same wavelength in terms of you know what I've seen before, as opposed to what I'm watching in front of me with Brian Pillman, because I saw Brian Pillman as flying Brian and the stuff he did, you know, with Steve Austin as part of the Hollywood Blondes and WCW, and albeit the loose cannon character was very intriguing and ahead of its time at that time i felt after the brian pillman uh gun storyline where you know pillman's got a gun on raw when steve austin invaded i felt like anything he did after this was just he'd set the bar way too high i think with the whole gun thing and anything he did after this was just very um Underwhelming, and I think too because I I always thought of him as flying Brian Pillman, and it, it, not knowing at the time the injuries that he had went through. Yeah, you no know, one knew that stuff. As far as I knew, he got injured when Stone Cold beat the crap out of him. Yeah, and, you know, I didn't know that he broke one his of ankle. The main be- reasons I hated Stone Cold Steve Austin for as long as I did because of what he did to Pillman. Right, and the reason why I liked Pillman was because oh, he trained in the dungeon, and he's you know from Calgary, you know yeah. that heart connection. You know, as a Bret Hart fan, I was like, well, this guy's got to be the bee's knees, right? Like, so when he's sitting there, you know, singing the praises of, a, of Bret Hart and the Hart family and Stone Cold, of course, doesn't give two dams about that. And then he goes and beats up Pillman. You're, that was it. I, screw you, Stone Cold. Like, <laughs> you know, it took me a long time to get behind Stone Cold. Probably around the time Stone Cold 
left was when I was like, oh, I like Stone Cold now. He's he's cool. But when you left in uh, 02? Probably around then. I was like, really? Honestly, I, I that's how much I love Bret Hart and the Hart Foundation. I was more of a rock guy. I know I kind of put, you know, historically, I put Stone Cold up above the rock. Popularity-wise, yeah. In the Attitude Era. But Stone Cold, to me, was was the devil, dude. You know? Not that, not that, um... Not that I didn't, like, you know, cheer against him in the Austin McMahon thing, but, mm-hmm. like, part of me was kind of just like, you know, I get it, you're you're the man, you're a badass, but, you know, there's other badasses. Like, I wanted to see Stone Cold and Ken Shamrock. Like, to me, that, you know, that one was would have been cool. Stone Cold and Pillman would have been cool, unfortunately. Yeah. You know, we didn't get to that. Um, Stone Cold and Owen, you know, as a, as a champion for Austin, um, would have been really cool, so... Here's a, que- here's a question for you. Hindsight being 2020, Brian Pillman, loose cannon character, had he not passed, do you think he would have been in the conversation in terms of star power during the height of the Attitude Era in 1998, Going even going into 1999 with names like Rock and Austin and, uh, you know, Mankind and Undertaker, those names that we discussed? Um... I don't think so. I think the guy's body had been through a lot already just from the physical toll wrestling takes on you. Mm-hmm. I think what they would have got, what we would have gotten very quickly after Steve Austin became the man was we would have gotten this program with Pillman and Austin after WrestleMania very quickly right yeah. away uh, within a year or so. Okay. Of, I think we would have gotten that. Um, obviously that's not what happened. Um, but and to be fair, too, I, I can't boldly say that he would have surpassed a Mankind or a Triple H. And obviously, he's not going to pass but, but, would, but you, so you think He would have been a player. But do you think he would have been in the, in the conversation in that group of guys? Like, if you, like no, now we go back and we talk Attitude Era names like Austin, Rock, Undertaker, Foley, Triple H, uh, Kane. Would Pillman have been in that group of guys that you remember from having a big mark on the Attitude Era just based on the kind of character that he had? If he were to, if he w- were alive, I think history would have treated him well as mm-hmm. I think it does now. Yep. Um, history would have made him a very much a pioneer. Yep. As I think it sort of does now. It could he could probably be given a little more, you know, dap on that. But um, as like, Jr. would say, like Pelmo was dropping the pipe bombs before CM Punk was uh, even born. That was a little sloppy. Um, I think he would have. He, he would have been a player, I think, given his age and, again, his durability. He was probably destined, and here comes the moneymaker. Boom. A loaded purse. Something else that's not around these days yeah. that could be uh, and used very well. I think he would have probably transitioned in the next couple of years to an authority figure or... Commentator. You know, a commentator would have been... That's right up his alley. Yeah. You know, maybe he would have gone back to WCW, but, you know, I think he was, a, he was definitely a, a business-savvy guy. Um, that was looking to make sure, and now he realizes his fate. But the, he's got he's got to rip the he's got to rip the dress because you can't wear it. That's for sure. <laughs> have you uh, have you taken a listen to uh, the Pillman? I did. I did. On, I finished on, it today. I was. Um, I still have to finish it. I, I'm, I got about like 20 minutes left on I, it. on yeah. 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff, yeah. by the way. I uh, I mowed some lawn today, did some trimming and all that nonsense at the house, and uh, I was listening to to Eric and Conrad chop up Brian Pillman. Um, so with that, you know, knowing all that, I, I, again, maybe he goes back to WCW at that point, you know, who knows how the, the screw job would affected his status as a Bret Hart 
That's true. I didn't even. I've never thought of that. Um, I've never thought of that. That's a good point. That could be a discussion for another time. But you know, his future could have been in doubt for sure. But I think he would have definitely made a good chunk of money staying in wrestling Uh and transitioning out of the ring and being less active. Yeah. And he could have done it. Probably. Think Corey Graves right now. Yeah. 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 That's a good point. I'm not a Corey Graves fan. Really. Uh, He's too snarky for me. Um, you think maybe it's because he's too overexposed because he's yes. all over? I remember Matt Stryker was that way, too. Yeah. Everyone loved that guy because he could make 1980s references about the Macho Man. Like, yeah. Awesome guy. Yeah. You get it. You can tell he's a fan. Yeah. Just cool. Just through just through his commentary. Yeah, um, absolutely. But uh, I think that would have been Pillman's future through the Attitude Era and, and then eventually, who knows. So. Imagine a three-man booth in 1998 going in 1999. J.R., King and Brian Pillman, all three guys on Monday Night Raw. People say J- people talk Jr. and King is the greatest. That's you know, my two era. Man. I'm not a gorilla Bobby guy like you, so I, I have to go Jr. King. And I'm not knocking for what they for what yeah. they did either. I mean, I, I even like some of Vince Jr. and King, like here on this, like sure. on, like on this. Yeah. Uh, I'll remember this one too. The, the Godwins neck. and the Legion of Doom. They had, a, they had the uh, the stars and bars that they brought out there too. You would never see that today. Oh, forget about it. Yeah, and we don't do politics on uh, kicking out at two, by the way. So if you guys want to talk politics and try to incorporate that in wrestling, it's not going to happen. So enough politics. In yeah, yeah, there's, yeah. There's enough. There's enough politics in life in general. So yeah. we don't really need to, uh, to 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 delve in your political beliefs. So if that's what you're looking for, then you can find another podcast. But the Hasbro Legion of Doom action figures, which I have here in the studio in my glass case turning around I've been, ever since i've started this endeavor i've gotten into uh, collecting some of the old action figures to kind of decorate the studio road warriors my favorite tag team probably of all time i worked the other day actually um we talked to the buddy of mine diehard wrestling fan and we i was like all right mount rushmore tag teams pick it and unanimously the road warriors was number one mm-hmm. sure um I think I put, like, the Rock and Roll Express in there. Um, the Dudleys are hard to really ignore. And I, honestly, I, I can't remember the last attack team I put in there, but it was kind of a wild card of sorts. Uh, knowing him, he was he was all about the Young Bucks and, you know, all those guys. And they're great. I don't, I don't, I don't discount their... I their don't think the sun back, rises but. and sets with those guys. Like, and maybe this will be another discussion for another time in terms of... Um, tag teams and i'm sure that's a team that will will get brought up the young bucks but i just don't i saw them wrestle once and all right they appeal to a younger generation that watches wrestling today but i don't think they're the greatest things since sliced bread like everyone's making them out to be i respect their athletic ability what they do in the ring but i think sometimes like the 45 super kicks and telling everyone to suck it like they 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 claim to be true innovators in a sense and in some regards they are but then they're stealing half they're still the hardy's 1997 wrestling gear for crying out loud the gear the too sweet with the you know the wolfpack nwo and then they're telling everyone to suck it it's like you know how innovative are you if half of your shtick is all about the 90s (laughs) you know you know what i mean like and don't get me wrong like i respect what they're doing out you know in the industry building a name for themselves outside of wwe even though they never wrestled in wwe but not yet that's just that yeah that could be possible too but that's a subject for another time i won't get too into that but you brought the bucks up i had to say that because i'm just not a big fan but back um, to like real teams that people remember like the godwins and the legion of doom though 
you knew the Godwins were bad guys when they didn't wear T-shirts underneath their overalls. But you know what? I think we should have known too what Ooh. Midian was on. To, Phineas was on to. He was he was slowly transitioning to naked Midian. I think here, no shirt. He's got the overalls. <laughs> There's a fanny pack hiding under those overalls for sure, though. <laughs> you are. You know what? I'm glad you brought up fanny pack. And, I'm not, and that, that'll probably be a subject that we'll discuss, uh, you know, on a future episode. But the watch along that we were doing, Ken and I, on the Ken Reedy show, uh, was the, uh, the, the Intrepid Slam. And Luger comes out. And he's got the USA with the shirt and everything, okay? And he's right. wearing these, like, you know acid wash blue jeans okay they look like mom jeans that's how hiked up they were but if you go back and you watch it and there's actually a, a a hidden gem on the wwe network right now chronicling uh luger slam and then the lex express tour heading into SummerSlam, which is like a three-hour piece it's like unseen footage i watched some of it. it was actually pretty interesting luger's jeans look like they had a built-in denim fanny pack attached to the front where the zipper and the and the belt and the those. get me those I will you have to go and see I'm telling you right now like I saw them and I was like what the heck are those I'd never seen those before and then Ken said the same thing you have to go back and watch it when he comes out during the slam as you see a double clothesline by Road Warrior Animal no no I gotta ask you this though because I think you know we can argue or not argue it's pretty much ironclad that the Road Warriors are the greatest tag team of all time. Uh-huh. You know, if you disagree, well, okay. You know, fine. Then you're probably a Young Bucks fan. Um, <laughs> but I think no one really talks about their run in the WWF. Their runs. Uh, so we're like, I, I have in my mind my favorite moment. What would be your favorite moment from the Road Warriors in in their WWF run? In their WWF run. Okay. Um... As much as I love the Road Warriors, their return in 97 leading up to their breakup and then reuniting as LOD 2000, I wasn't the biggest fan of that run. My favorite Road Warrior moment from... All right, this is a tie. I know it's, you know, not one, but I would say two Road Warrior moments for me were the first run in WWF when they... They helped the Hart Foundation beat Demolition in the two out of three falls match at the 1990 SummerSlam when Axe and Smash were pulling the old switcheroo because they had yeah. Crush as the third guy. You don't and see the ro- that anymore, too. That's, yeah, go on. Then the, <laughs> and uh, they, they pulled, I think, Smash or Axe from underneath the ring, revealing that three guys were in the match when the referee wasn't you know, aware that all three guys were participating in it, helping the Hearts win. That's probably one of my favorite um, tag team matches in general to watch because of the excitement, um, especially with the Road Warriors' involvement. And then the match that they had with the Nasty Boys yes, at the 1991 SummerSlam. Took mine. From... It was a it was a no disqualification match, and if I remember correctly, I could be wrong. There'll probably some be someone out there that will correct me, but uh, I believe that was the first time they won the belts. No, not only that they won the belts, but that was the first time that WWF advertised a no disqualification match. 
if I'm not mistaken. You know what? That would be a cool thing to know either way if that's it is or not because that would be, yeah, that'd be very interesting. And for those of you that want to correct me or feel the need to correct me, as of this recording right now, kicking out a two, you can, you can log on to Facebook right now, hit the like button to check out all the stuff from, from us here at Kicking Out at Two. We'll have fan polls, discussions, maybe even some topics that you guys want us to talk about here on the show. We'll put it up there on the Facebook. I'm in the process of setting up Instagram and Twitter and things like that. This old curmudgeon is a little technologically challenged, so my wife and I are you know, going to work on that in the next couple of days. So anywhere out there, Instagram, Twitter, but obviously right now you can find us on Facebook. Go to facebook.com forward slash kicking out at two. That's the number two at the end. And uh, you can uh, hit the like button and be a part of the newest retro pro wrestling podcast going today. Well said, well said. Um, so definitely number one was the, 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 the match against the Nasties at, at SummerSlam 91. Mm-hmm. And the only reason, again, I was two years old when that was on, so I don't remember watching that, you know, despite being at Snooka, Morocco, way back when. But um, I, 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 I call that number one and not too far behind. To me, as a youngster, was LOD 2000. And... Goddamn, Sonny really put that group over. <laughs> Jeez, I, like as a she kid, put, she put everyone over, according to a lot of people. Sonny, Sonny was what did you? What was the expression you used? All the way live. All the way live. Um, I'm gonna go with that to put it because that's a very retro term. You know, not only are we just talking retro, you know, topics, but we're gonna talk very retro All the way live, as well. I feel like is like a neon sign you would see at like a strip club. Like, and it's just like buzz, you can hear it buzzing and like the bugs are like poking at it because they want to like get sunny sunny to the main stage all the way live <laughs> yeah um, but that one is up there and then you know what I mean I, I, I kind of marked out as even a youngster when and again, I wasn't young when this happened but when they made that last return for that Monday Night Raw shot kind of like that little like curtain call of sorts for them when they came out was that 2002? 2003, I believe that was against uh, RVD and Kane. Yeah, I thought that was just the coolest thing. And I don't, I remember I did not watch that live. I think you probably were the one that told me about it. And then I saw it after the fact, and I was like, that's just super-duper cool. Because I recorded everything on VHS at the time. Well, no, 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 to be fair. I recorded it. You were always somewhere else. That's right. To, you had to call me at 7.57 yep. to make sure that it was recorded, and I'm like, I got it. Because I worked in the restaurant business, so my hours were all kinds of wacky, and I always had to work on a Monday night, so it was... Uh, you know, I had so to I'm call the house. Yeah, that's a the, VHS expert. That's a good point. Yeah, but make you know, sure you rewind the tape. Yeah. <laughs> you could tape over it. That's fine. Yeah, Don't worry. Yeah, about yeah. It. That was from that was from six weeks ago. It's not a big deal. <laughs> it's not a big deal. We already know what happened. Oh my goodness! But um, you didn't record all the raw. What the hell? But you know what? You know what? We're gonna go back. Hold on. So so going back to that moment with the nasty boys. The only reason I even remember that is because I believe you recorded SummerSlam 1991. Yes, I did. However. In my world, not knowing what was going on in and around and outside of SummerSlam, mm-hmm. that recording somehow mysteriously stops after the match made in hell. I never got to see the match made in heaven. It stopped. Live. It's. It, I remember this correctly. It stopped when, um, when uh, Elizabeth started walking down the yeah. aisle in the beginning yeah. of the match I, made in so heaven. I missed the wedding. Um, yeah. So thanks a lot. You know that was a big deal. 
Um, well, do you want to? All right, let's put it this way. Since this is a SummerSlam theme, and in in, here I'm kicking out at two in the next few weeks, we're going to be doing some SummerSlam themed related shows as we get to the 30th anniversary coming up on August 19th. Would you like to come back and we can watch the wedding from SummerSlam 1991 you and know, do it right here and kicking out at two? I think we can certainly do that. Okay. Um, but you know what? That's the standard bear. That's probably what? One of few weddings in wrestling that started and ended with a marriage. You know, we'll, we'll, let's talk about all the weddings, man. You know, it's wedding season. Yes. You know what I mean? But he, but the, the 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 wedding on the television, you know, that we watched started and ended, but it was the reception is when things got lit, as the kids would say, back in 91 when Undertaker and Jake Roberts had invaded that wedding. The original wedding crashers. The, yes. The, the Undertaker and yes. Jake And Damien. And Damien. Or was it Lucifer at that point? No, it was just a, it was just a random cobra that was in the box. They didn't, he didn't, he but didn't what, name, but he didn't name the cobras. The cobra. Wasn't the cobra Lucifer? No. Lucifer. Savage? Lucifer, no, Lucifer was the, um, no, Lucifer was the Python still. So, Damien, so Earthquake killed Damien, and then... Which, you know, no one's really, you know, thank God John Tenta's not around because he'd be up for some serious charges. Right yeah, now. I wonder what the statute of limitations are on, uh, Death, uh homicide of a, uh, a reptile. <laughs> uh... There was there was Damien, and then Lucifer was another Python, and then I, that's when I think it was around that time frame when uh, the Cobra never got a name. The co- I don't remember the Cobra having a name. The cobra has some serious heat, taking a chunk out of Savage. That was serious, and I remember you recorded that one. I watched years later, and I was like, I thought that was the fakest looking Cobra ever, but nope, it was as legend would have it, the real deal. Um, and they tried the doomsday device there. It didn't really work. Um, and they're going to go for it again? No. No, so it looks like a spike pile driver. So illegal 10 years before. But. Yeah. One, and two. They won with that? I, I, that wow. I didn't even remember that, that they won. I was going to say, that, the things you don't remember that come back to you. Now, that brings me to the, the other point that you see. You don't see, like, and I, we've definitely talked about this off air before, is like, you know, obviously finishing moves are like such a staple of wrestling mm-hmm. or specials if you play the games, right? Yep, the video game, yeah. But you never just see like a fluke out of nowhere win, a, 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 a roll up or, you know, a, where a guy has to resort to just doing something else to win. Bret Hart was the king of that. That's why I go. That, that's where I'm getting at. Here. The roll up with Diesel at the 95 Survivor yeah, Series. Yeah, you know what I mean? Or even when he lost the Bulldog. I know he was on the losing end of that, but like psychologically speaking, like you can't. If, if your signature move is that big of a deal, in, in the world of pro wrestling, you would think that your opponents are preparing for that. So it was cool to see that, like, you could see other guys, like, you know, you had to see the guys resort to different tactics to win a match. That's, that makes it more believable. Y- again, it's been probably a good 15, 20 years where that just doesn't happen anymore. No, nowadays you, you, you have to get the signature move in, otherwise... You have to get you know, it in eight times. Yeah. <laughs> and the guy's got to kick out seven of those eight times yeah, to, with absolutely. the signature move. Now, this is the sweepstakes. You mentioned uh, this earlier. I remember wanting to do it. I don't remember if I... Yeah, it was like, you, they want a million dollars. They were going for... They had the opportunity yeah. to go for a million dollars. Yeah, that's what it was. And this guy's not a Stone Cold fan at all. Shaved head, goatee. Well, he's got an Undertaker shirt skin, on, so. skin tight, jean shorts. Or his, all he's missing are the knee braces. Jorts, as the kids would call them these days. There he is, getting a little limo treatment, and boom. Sonny, back off. Take it easy, Sonny. Sable. 
Yeah, there you go. That's that is the 1990s personified, right there. As far as women in pro wrestling go, um, all you're missing there is Missy Hyatt. Look at the grin on that kid's face, Ryan Chaddock. Oh my God, if he's out there, he needs to he needs to get in touch with us and explain to us what he was thinking in this very moment because he was the envy of children my age. Oh, for sure. Oh my God. Um, you kidding me? 15. I would have changed my name to so, Ryan so Chaddock at the time. Yeah, so he, so for again, they, they pick a key, right? Those are all keys. Yeah. And it's supposed to open, like, what? The, the coffin. The coffin, yes. Because it's the uh, Undertaker-themed so, SummerSlam. So Ryan picked 52. Um, I bet that was his dad's, like, high school football jersey number or something. And then Stone Cold Extra Light here, Patrick. And if you'd like one of those uh, sunny back rubs, you can uh, you can order one of those on Skype right yeah. now or at the local uh, Legends of the Ring wrestling convention <laughs> coming to a town near you. Oh, my God, yeah. She but does you know, like... I want a 1997 back rub, not a 2018 back rub. <laughs> um, Ask Dolph Ziggler about oh that oh one. Oh, my God. <laughs> he didn't get 1997 either. Who's no, I think he got like a, a 2010, uh, I think, uh, if yeah. I'm not mistaken, after the story that Sonny told. I was there for that, too. And For the back rub? Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, so what did they do? They called? Oh, because there was, like, people. There was a third contestant. Like, you, you could win over the, like, the two people got to go to out. SummerSlam, yeah. fly in, and then there was one person. It was a phone sweepstakes as well. So you got oh, to, you get, they called someone you. someone not pick up? I remember that. Um... Todd's like, yeah. They might have, yeah, they might have not picked up in this one. I feel like they called a few people. Yep. Steve, not home. Yep, not home. Call Steve, you back. Sorry. Steve, that would never happen in 2018. In 2018, your cell phone is your direct line. You probably don't even have a landline. Yeah. You picked up no matter where you are. I think someone else, too. I think there was like two callers that weren't home. That, uh, yeah, they really, they really didn't, you know, they, they, they kind of fixed the concept with, what was it, uh, Money Mania or whatever? The Million, million dollar, dollar Mania? Mc, McMahon's Million Dollar Mania, where he gave away a million bucks of his own money or someone else's money. Right. Yeah, they definitely, uh, this was the first draft of that. All right, Sable, relax. So you can see just the, the, just the, the tension there between the two. Oh, yeah, there was an answering machine here, I think. That's what it was. Yeah. That's why I was like a quick, or, or do not disturb if they were up, up on the cell phone game back then. I don't think they were, honestly. Probably not. I, in 1997, it, look, I believe... if you had a cell phone that could do that in 1997, you probably didn't need a million dollars. Yeah, I think the cell phones in 97 were like the big brick phones. Oh, like, exactly. I think that's what phones. they were. Yeah. yeah. The Paul, Paul Hay Pauly Dangerously. Pauly Dangerously <laughs> phones, yeah. yeah. Zach Morris stole Pauly Dangerously's gimmick. Yeah. <laughs> that's for sure. And there we go. They're still dialing more. This is just... We should have found something else to talk about in this time, because this is... Who was that, like, guy all the way in the end? Looks like Bill Gates. Yeah. Yeah. It was, like, his money or something, right? I don't know. For maybe he was, remember. like... Honestly, I really don't know. I wonder if he was from, like, the New Jersey State Lottery or something. Like, I... That's probably what it was. Yeah. Overseeing, making sure that the contest isn't a work like everything else on the show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Is that a working lottery or a shoot lottery? <laughs> well, they're all a work. Yeah. Let's be real. Yeah, because they work no one you into, knows anyone that won the lottery. Yeah, they work you into buying a ticket, and then <laughs> yeah, and then you just don't you just take your money. Yeah, you maybe walk away with like five bucks from a scratch ticket, but if I think the I most did. money the most money 
Nikki. <laughs> I'll refer to her a lot. My wife, Nikki, a Christmas party one year. We, we won a thousand bucks off a scratch ticket on a Yankee, Yankee swap, which was kind of cool. Oh yeah, yeah. I can't say I won more than like twenty or thirty bucks. That was the yeah, that was the coolest thing that we've won together. We're like, oh nice. Now she's not camera ready over here. Save all your the cameras over here, dude. Near receipt, the discovery zone, the fun zone. It was like the Chuck E. Cheese of that era, yeah. right? Yeah, like laser tag and like yeah. and stuff there. Isn't that where they had uh, Crash Holly and the Headbangers had that hardcore title <laughs> match? <laughs> Elroy That's how Je long their contract went through with the WWF. Elroy okay. Jetson. I don't know. Maybe. I yeah, could be wrong. Just, but you know, Could have been anything. It, it could have been, yeah. And here we go. Just going to really work that. Uh, no. Sorry. Wrist action by Sonny. Did not grease the keyhole enough. Didn't work. Yeah, I know. Just like you. You didn't work out either, honey. <laughs> Here's Yeah, I mean... I'm not going to knock her contributions in terms of what she brought at the time. She brought a little more of a, her and Sable obviously brought a little more of a uh, sex appeal to the, uh, to the product, but that whole, you know, uh, first diva, that whole phrase that she was throwing out there that, that, that year at the hall of fame when we went like to me, that's all in my opinion. And maybe just cause I grew up watching it. It's always going to be Miss Elizabeth. She had that like classy diva kind of yeah element also to her. Also due to be inducted one one day. Yeah, and I know everyone's talking. Like I guess Mick Foley recently was on the on the internets there talking about how he would be honored to induct China. I saw that. That's all good and grand. I love Mick Foley, but he has a tendency to put his foot in his mouth a little bit and speak. He did that for Vader too before Va before yeah. Vader died. When yeah. Vader announced he like, had two okay, years left to live. Yeah, like you have a lot of friends or had, um, but. Uh, before China ever gets in, you got to put in Miss Elizabeth, and that's that's just to me. On a, on there are a lot of people that should have gone in before others. Yeah, yeah, exactly. you know, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter at this point. Um, but Bruno Sammartino waited like forever. Yeah, we're so, not waited, if you will. But fourteen is the next key. We're gonna. I was fourteen years old at this time. That's interesting. Well, you were not a million dollars richer. No, I, I certainly so. wasn't. And after taxes, you got to figure you're not getting that whole mill, right? You're getting like what half, a little over. You're getting like six fifty, seven maybe. Yeah, probably something like that. Range. Yeah. Um, and then here's this kid who probably still lives off this moment. Yeah. As he should. This is this is like he lives on the WWE network forever. I mean, that's that's enough for me. Oh, I know. I mean, Christ, if I had had this moment. Fifty-two dad's football number. Nah. Uh, Wah, 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 wah. Yeah, it looks like one of those kids that would like that would like the million dollar man would like bring on to like dribble a basketball or something and suck his toes or yeah, something for a hundred bucks totally gets screwed over. <laughs> and he gets screwed over whatever and here comes stone cold patrick stevenson <laughs> um and that's the bottom line because my chicken legs said so yeah Yep, you're, you're you're still in the trailer park, man. Yep, there you moving go. Moving on up, that's for sure. Nothing wrong with people that uh, live in trailer parks, by the way. <laughs> for those of you that might, you know, be offended or very sensitive, because we do live in a sensitive world these days. <laughs> and then here's this guy. We'll, you'll, someone will have to send his name over. Yeah. But Sonny likes him a lot. Bill Gates, Steve Jobs. Who could he be? Uh oh! Here's the key. He looked like number he, three. 
which was the date of that SummerSlam in 97. You know, it's funny, and it's easy to just say this now, but I remember watching this and seeing this happen and going, I would have picked number three. I think which, I said the same thing, too. <laughs> which I think we're both, you know, talking out of our ass. Yeah. And that's Sable's lawsuit money that she never got. Look at that. Next match. Back to business. Ken Shamrock and the British Bulldog. I was a, I, I was a big Shamrock guy. I liked Shamrock. I thought that... You know, 97 when he debuted and even most parts of 98, like he was he was the real deal to me. Not saying that, you know, what the guys didn't do was real, but like he was he was badass for me. I, I thought it was I thought he was really cool. Oh, yeah. no doubt. And I kind of wish he didn't leave and had a little bit wrong, longer of a run. I really thought he could have been WWF champion someday. I honestly did. Oh, absolutely. Um, Bulldog could have been WWF. Yeah, Davy Boy, oh. too. I mean, that. I, but you know what, though? Like, you, you get that type of stuff now, too. Like, this guy should be the champion. That guy should be the champion. Like, when you get to this stage of it, you're all really fucking good. Yep. You know what I mean? Yeah. If there's just those, it's just, it just comes down to a small group of people that make those decisions, and, you know, it's about making money, and they figure out their game plan and they do it their way it, but you know what? what's wrong with being on the card at SummerSlam you know yeah. what I mean no 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 there's nothing wrong with that. so this was a big this match was a big deal I just think because like they had hyped him up from being from UFC and that stigma that UFC had at the time before it really broke into the mainstream as being like very like underground and dirty that like, it was kind of perceived as at that time it was illegal in a lot of states to even have you know to, to, to put on an event like that and then yeah. him to come over to that world into WWF into professional wrestling you, you you really had no choice but to take notice of him and I thought because of that and that stigma that he had the world's most dangerous man and he, like I was like he's fucking real like holy cow like he could beat all their fucking asses you know but hindsight being twenty twenty, maybe he couldn't beat all of them up but I just thought like there was so much more Potential that Shamrock Wrong had, but there. there's nothing wrong. But there's nothing wrong with the the career that he had, the short career that he had in pro wrestling. Oh, no doubt. Like he, I guess he, he was again a different time, different place. He's probably what Brock Lesnar is now. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you think about that, um, it, it always wondered. I it always it, it's always gotten to me to 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 wonder why that guy's never made a return. I'm not saying he's a Hall of Fame guy, but, you know, people certainly drop that question. And, you know, I know he's apparently said that he's never gotten that call. He doesn't really have much contact with, with people at WWE. And, it, you know, always makes me wonder what must have happened to kind of, you know, have that bridge be somewhat burnt a little bit. So, you know, again, the guy definitely had a has a... Uh, a page in the chapter of the history of the Attitude Era, for sure. Oh, yeah. Um... So, and now he comes in and he just knuckles up. Lighten up, Davey boy. Yeah, and you know, these dudes are not small. That's the other thing people got to realize. Like, the Bulldog is a, was a big dude. Even here, you know, he wasn't big like he was, you know, 10 years prior, mm -hmm. like size-wise, but he was he was still a, a thick guy. Oh, he's a big, yeah, but he, he leaned out pretty well yeah, during could, this era. And they could fly, though. Like, look at, like, even Shamrock, like... You know, not that he had to fly, but, like, these dudes can move. That, yeah. You know, and for me, you know, these are the type of guys that I that you couldn't get in WCW. 
at this time. I know, you know, we've talked about this before. I've, I was a, you know, I've always been a WWE, WWF guy. You know, yeah. I, I, I would, I would definitely watch that first hour of Nitro before Raw came on. But once nine o'clock hit, it was all about WWE. You didn't WWF flip the channel in. No, and that's just me personally. Yeah. Like I said, I didn't grow up on Hogan or Savage or yeah. all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So to me, while the numbers dictated otherwise for 83 weeks, to me, this was the better show up, up and down. You had, you had hard hitting action. You had, you had legit guys who could, you know, who could beat you up and be badasses and. Yeah, yeah, the character aspect of it. Well, they had the, to me from, especially in 1997, top to bottom. To me, this before the numbers reflected it in the polls, if you will, this was the better product. I know that's not a popular uh, feeling, but I, I would I would still stick with that to this day. No, hindsight being 2020, I mean, uh, I, I I couldn't agree with you more on this era of WWF television being better than WCW and I I didn't realize it then and even years later but more recently as I uh, I know you don't listen to him a whole lot or you haven't really at all but the WHW what happened when podcast with Tony Schiavone and Conrad Thompson they do a lot of watch alongs like we're doing here and they do a lot of stuff with WCW Jim Crockett promotions old nitros and I I remember there was one Nitro that they did a watch-along of. It was the, I think it was the 20th anniversary of when Lex Luger beat Hulk Hogan for the title on a Nitro. It was the first time I think Nitro went three hours. That was before, was that before, was it Road War? Road Road Wild. Wild. Yeah, Road Wild, 1997. dropped the title like A week later, later, yeah, Yeah, six days later. And then Dean and I got the pay-per-view, but we ordered the replay at like 11 o'clock at night and stayed up till like 2 or 3 in the morning to watch the whole thing. Anyhow, going back and doing the watch along, obviously, Tony and Conrad make it funny and entertaining. But if it wasn't for that NWO storyline and maybe a couple other instances in like, you know, the cruiserweight division and some of the the mid card kind of guys, there wasn't a whole lot to really hang your hat on with those nitros now that i look back and i watched one because i was trudging through that three hour (laughs) watch along with them and i was like all right let's get to hogan and luger i was like oh no we're gonna see laparka wrestle dean malenko for no fucking reason you know what i mean like there just wasn't a whole lot like as a kid i hung on because the nwo storyline was that hot and that cool and i had to watch nitro because i felt like if i changed the channel i was gonna miss something so i was a channel flipper when it came to to wwf and wcw during the monday night war era but you're absolutely right looking back on it there was much more substance in the shows from wwf during this time period than there was from wcw on nitro well to your point everything had a reason you know what i mean yep this wasn't for the championship this wasn't to be the best ever this was to humiliate entertaining aspect it's a humiliation you know this is some drawn blood there out of the mouth he, this is this is uh, bulldog loses man. He's got to eat dog food, you know what I mean. And I don't think anybody wants to have to try that. No. Again, it's 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 very basic too. It's just a basic way to get people Ooh. to be in, interested. Why didn't he DQ him? Yeah. Come on, Jack. Jack Doan. Um. Yeah, and 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 especially here, you, you know, I know you know Vince Russo, bro, if you will. <laughs> um. He he had a lot of influence here and. He was kind of, he was, that was his thing. He gave everything 
a reason. It gave everything meaning. Yeah. Um, you know, you can we can say what we will about what he's done historically speaking, where his place in history is, but you know, the guy put in you know the quality of work at the time that was necessary to draw an audience and, and played his part on the team. Um, and this would probably be a good example of that the dress match as well. Um, I know it didn't make the pay-per-view, but there was the stipulation that was kind of went nowhere, which kind of goes with Vince Russo about Jim Anvil, Neidhart getting that, that, um, that, uh, beard, that little goatee. If I remember correctly, who was he supposed to wrestle? Was he supposed to wrestle Vader? Or was he supposed to wrestle Sid? I want to say it was, was it Sid? I want to say it was Sid. It kind of dropped off out of nowhere. Again, very Vince Russo-like in that sense. He had something going for a week and then he just, you just, it never saw the light of day again. Um, so, but again, you, you throw that on the card, that would have mattered. People yeah. would have, they would have been invested for the nine minutes he would have given it. Mm-hmm. People would have been like, wow, that was awesome because Jimmy and Villanueva almost got his goatee shaved or, or, you know, did get his goatee shaved. People would have cared. Um, and again, WWE. Oh, another one. And the ref still not calling for the bell. Another low he blow. Be halfway done with Ooh. that. Jesus. With that, uh, that was a little sloppy. Yeah. But yeah, again, it's just, you didn't see a lot of that in WCW. Um, and it's, but again, numbers are hard to argue with as far as how they, how they put on a good show. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just my preference, man. You know, wrestling's great. When you get to this point, you can all wrestle. You can all, you all bring something to the team. Yeah. Um, it's just, you got to make me care. And I feel like even if it's just the most basic thing like this, it's better than just two guys wrestling for no reason. For just he's he's better or I'm better. It doesn't always have to be that way. No, it doesn't. I mean, it's nice to have um, some substance and and uh, some meaning behind you know some of these rivalries. But at the same time, there's nothing wrong. Depending on who the the, the two individuals are, there's nothing wrong with just having two guys wanting to prove who's the best. And I think sometimes the simplest storytelling, um, works as well. I mean, it all depends on the, the, the right guys in the right circumstances. Right. I feel like, if, I feel like the bet, the, the, the more depth you have to yourself as a character, the more of a body of work that you have that lends itself to a, and Shamrock just loses it here. Um, I think the, the more, the, the bigger your body of work, the more depth you have as, as a character, the, the simpler the story can be. Yeah. Um, you know, you might need more bells and whistles because, you know, they just don't know about you yet They're, or your character. They haven't introduced it, you know, or just the timeline of sorts. You need more time out there. And I think Shermock had been out here for, what, four or five months at this point. You know, this was this was something good to oh. get going. And, yeah, this kind of created the whole, like, madman character where he would, like, snap and kind of, like, go roid rage. Yeah. People. This was kind of one of those big parts of what made his character what it became eventually. Um, so again, that's, that kind of as we're watching along, it kind of it kind of the story tells itself right here, and that, you know as we you know provide the background to it. Sleeper hold, rear naked choke. I think he ends it here, right? Yeah. No, they already called for the bell because they. Uh... Oh, because the. Because the the dog food and that's the weapon, but a low blow. Yeah, the two low blows Davy Boy delivered. No, don't worry about. it. I'm not going to ring the bell. I'm going to let the match go. But I'm going to throw a can of dog food at the other guy's head, and that's it. I, I've had enough. It's you, time to end this match. Do you think actually? If I'm, you know, it's funny to think about that. Do you think that maybe like snap decision, like Bulldog just did that to do it, like for no reason, and knowing what the finish was, they were like, well, we have to kind of 
pretend like that didn't happen, you know? So you, you, you like, try, you're trying to say that Davey Boy kind of go into business for himself uh, because he no, knew the finish? I, no, I don't want to say that. Like, more so that, like, you know, just instinct kicks in for a half second and you just kick a guy in the nuts. Uh, I mean... I won't rule it out, but uh, at the same yeah. time, I'm not also like, going to... I could just see people, like, guys on the headsets going, like, what the hell was that? Yeah. And then, like, someone, you know, all right, like, let's, you know, on commentary, like, all right, let's not talk about it. Or if they do address it, they'll say, the referee's kind of letting the rules fly. Like, that's, yeah, like, a standard. right. I feel like... You saw a lot of that, too. Yeah. Um, Which is not a bad... It, it's a good cover-up, I will say. Like, a lot of times, you know... You see something that a referee is supposed to call a DQ for, and then the announcers will be instructed, or they'll just, you know, do it on their own based on, you know, the amount of reps they've had and experience over the years, and they'll right. say, you know, oh, the referees, you know, referee wants a, a clear cut winner. We're gonna, you know, let the rules fly a little. It's, it's something that you know makes sense, even though it's a screw up. It's a good cover up. And you know what? I think that that's just that's how they've always operated. You know what I mean? Like. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong, so let's not marry ourselves to like a certain thing happening. Yeah, let's just roll the punches mm-hmm. um, and not think it's the end of the world. I know, like Vince McMahon has always been famous for saying nothing can go wrong when it's live. Yeah. So if something goes wrong, we just got to call the audible and figure out what to do. Um, I know that's this is a very possible minute scenario where that happens, but. You know, again, like a guy just kicks a guy in the nuts for no reason, doesn't really have a clear thought in mind, and you're in the heat of battle, if you will. You know, they probably, maybe they did address it here in the commentary, but my bash at the beach watch along, I did. If you ever, if you get a chance to watch it, it was during the uh, during the, the the Conan Ric Flair United States title match, and Flair came out with Elizabeth and and, and woman, and. You could just, I was not a fan of the match at all. As a matter of fact, it was one point during my commentary on this match where, like, I really didn't have a whole lot to say because I just, I didn't want to repeat myself saying that the match fucking sucked. But um, there was one point during the match where uh, Flair was on the outside and I believe Conan was up going up to the top rope and Woman shakes the bottom rope, which causes Conan to fall and. Uh, you know, kind of hang himself on the ropes a little. And referee Nick Patrick is standing right there watching the whole damn thing. Well, that Patrick was always pretty crooked. So. <laughs> you know, Nick Patrick being that NWO crooked ref, stealing the Danny Davis gimmick. The slow count at Starcade. Remember that? <laughs> Very, yeah, absolutely. The, the, the Starcade slow count 97. Yeah. Holy cow. As Shamrock exits the ringside area after he just basically disposed of all the referees, officials, and Davy Boy Smith. Speaking of referees, we have Shawn Michaels decked in the, the zebras with Todd Pettengill uh, ready to uh, officiate the main event later on in the evening between The Undertaker and Bret Hart. Uh, now, another part of this that, again, everything had a stipulation on this one, which, again, I thought was kind of cool. Yep. You know, Shawn's stipulation was if he's... You know, if, if he helps The Undertaker win or if he has any um, aggressive say in the decision. If he's biased against Brett. Yeah. Uh, he would also no longer wrestle in the United States, which I thought was like, well, he, like, so what? Like, you don't have a beef with the United States. Like, Brett's whole Brett stipulation was if he lost, he would never wrestle in the United States again. And since he's not from the United States, that really didn't matter. He could just go home. Now, for Sean, it was like, well, then where are you going to wrestle? Like, I, I, I didn't. I mean, I, I guess it was just a little extra nugget on top that you could kind of work with, but it was. Uh, 
I didn't, I didn't understand, you know, back 14 years old, I thought to myself in my, in my, my 14 year old brain that, okay, if he gets, if he causes Brett to, to, to lose and he can't wrestle in the United States anymore, what's stopping him from going to WCW? <laughs> you know no, what I mean? That's actually a really good point. Like, uh, you know, if he can't wrestle in the United States in the WWF, well, he could certainly re- wrestle in the United States in WCW with his buddies Hall and Nash in the NWO. New so Japan, I, New Japan was out there, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, New, New Japan, Japan, yeah, ECW at one yeah. point. The height of factions. Oh my god! In in 1997, if you can name every member of the Los Bariquas. Um, I, I can. <sighs> Savio Vega. Well, naturally. Uh, Jose Estrada. Jose Estrada. That's all I got for you. Shit, that's might all I have. Um, uh, Jose Estrada, Savio Vega. Who was the fucking hairy one? I forget his name. Hector Garza wasn't one of them, right? No, no, no. Hector Garza was in WCW. He was, you know, one of the guys that would pop in and out from AAA. Hector, uh, Savio Vega, Jorge Estrada. Miguel Perez. Yeah, that sounds familiar. And was there a Jesus? Probably. And it probably was just Jesus, I feel like. Like, just like, you know, Gaga uh, and Madonna. Like, Jesus. I'm going to look this up right now. Because <laughs> no, it's bothering me. I should know this shit. Like, back 10 years ago, someone asked me a question, I'd fucking tell you. And they'd be like, oh, my God, you know so much. Like, nowadays, like, I don't know, it's because I'm old and I don't, you know... Maybe just because I'm old, but I don't understand. Like, all right, here we go. Los Boricuas. Now hold on. Was this an eight? This is an eight man. So who? This, was, so it was Skull, Eight Ball, Crush, and Chains. Chains, yes. All right, yes, we I had known that too. Miguel Perez. Uh, come on, give me. Savio Vega, Jose Estrada, and Jesus Castillo. Okay. Those were the four. All right. But you know what? These little matches were cool too. You know what I mean? Back to the the Russo, Russo, Vince Russo school of how to book wrestling. It, it gives someone something to do that matters. Exactly, exactly. I'm glad you brought that up. Look, you know what? That doesn't mean that Vince Russo deserves any place in wrestling right now, mm-hmm. other than just to you know poke fun at everything that happens in wrestling. Mm-hmm. But um, again, there's some good that Vince Russo did. Um, if I was starting a wrestling promotion tomorrow, he's certainly not the first guy I call. No. But, um, you know, he deserves to have his contributions still be highlighted a little. Celebrated. Bit. Yeah. And yeah. Like I said, this mattered a little bit. Not a lot. You know what I mean? And I think as the audience got smarter, it was like, you know, you couldn't do this today and have matter. You know what I mean? I think the height of Russo in, in terms of his, um, <clears throat> excuse me, his, his brand of, of uh, you know, storytelling and writing was during the later years in the attitude era 98 99 where like almost everybody on the roster was on the show in some form or fashion if you thought about it and most guys with the exception of maybe you know the 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 top four guys in the company would most guys didn't get multiple segments on monday night raw you know you saw them once that's when you saw them you know what I mean? So Russo made a spot for everybody on the card and made them seem important. Like I brought it earlier, Crash Holly and the 24-7 rule with the hardcore title. Anybody who wasn't doing anything, you know, they could, they, they, they could be a part of that. Granted, that was 
Russo, I think, was gone by then, but still that school of thought and that train of thought was brought into WWF storylines at the time. And you know what? I think that speaks to the, the mindset of the company, like, as far as, you know, how they felt they needed to put together a show. And yeah, was that partially influenced by Vince Russo? Sure, but it also go, lends to show you what everyone else has said about Vince Russo is that you know, he may have all these ideas, but the number, the editor of the show, the final say until the guy no longer is with us is Vince McMahon. Yeah. So he seemed to, at least in many ways, believe in that concept at that time to help produce a, 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 a you know, a wrestling show. Now look at this here, just for, just for a minute. This, <laughs> they they come out in their bikes, they do their grand entrance, then they circle around the ring, then they go all the way back up, and then they park the bikes. Why wouldn't they just? Get out there, park the bikes, and then walk down the aisle. Why'd you have to do the whole fucking circle around the ring? Because the Undertaker probably told them to do that. <laughs> you know, and the Undertaker is, you know, got a lot of pull back here. You know what I mean? I think he helped create this this uh, this you know, stable, if I'm not probably, mistaken. If he, if he really pushed hard enough, probably would have been the fifth member of the DOA. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's just, that's just an aesthetic thing, a, a live... You know, just imagine being in the front row for that. Just what an experience that is. Everything is visual. Everything is tangible. Everything mm-hmm. is... That's what a live event is, yeah. whether it's on television or not. And even if you watch it on television, you get to go see that. Like, that's the, 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 the showmanship, the performance aspect of wrestling. That, yep. that still, take, you know, still has its place that I think Vince McMahon has perfected. You know, the WWE has perfected that aspect of sports entertainment because like it or not i know it's you know they're pro wrestlers but they are they are in sports entertainment um that's that's so much of an important aspect of what the show is if they Mm -hmm. had just done what you just said people would have been like oh all right you make a good point there i guess i don't know i just think from like from a storytelling perspective like if i were those guys like currently gas, gas is not cheap no, well, and yeah, nowadays. But if I were if I were the DOA, I was fighting the Los Periquas. I would just get up and park the bike. I wouldn't yeah. make a big spectacle. Could be an intimidation, you know. Could yeah, be, I guess you could say like that. that. You know, you talk about you know the gang type thing. You know, you talk about you know the the West Side Story aspect of. You but know, who's to say that the one Los Periquas to the other, and you know you rev up the stuff, and you you you, you, you kind of show them who you are. Who's to say the Los Periquas wouldn't have jumped out of the ring while they were riding on their bikes to cause an even sure. You know, greater damage to that. And you know what? I know they showed it in the vignette a few minutes ago, or the, you know, the, the the promo package. Yeah. You know, if this was going on in 2018, they were definitely coming out in a lowrider for sure. And I know, <laughs> and, and I don't mean that to be mean or you know, whatever no, no, you no. want to call it. But that would have been that would have been a thought in the presentation. And logistically, if they could have done it, I'm sure they would have. Yeah. Um. You know, someone didn't have a lowrider. <laughs> you know, I guess New Jersey doesn't just have lowriders hanging around. No. I think in a, you know, in the armpit of America, they would have had a garage somewhere where they could have taken one for a day. But I don't think in 1997 either. Obviously, the the where they were as a company that they could afford to just uh, you know, rent a lowrider. You know what I mean? Yeah, At that time, you know. It, yeah, it, that's a good point too. I mean, they, they weren't. They weren't exactly. Uh, you know, sometimes from what I've, from stories I've heard, and it's all, you know, speculation, sometimes they had a hard time making payroll um, right. during, during this era. You know, guys had to take pay cuts because of the, the landscape of the business and 
how well they weren't doing financially. Yeah, there were grittier aspects of the presentation than, you know, you go back to like those those sets of Monday Night Raw and it's just a giant curtain and a, a ramp. Yep. You know what I mean? And, yeah. you know, they took scaffolding and put light, shine lights on it and hung banners off it and that was the show. You know? The big screen. Yeah. yeah. Titantron. Yep. Titantron. And that's, you know, that's just so much in our, in our uh, lexicon of what and rhetoric of how we speak about wrestling, the, the Titantron, you know, um, the Titantron kind of came around in this time. Um, and again, they did what they could with what they had. And it speaks to what they could have done if they had more. Um, and I think we're seeing a lot of that right now. We're seeing, I think, you know, to go current, we're seeing, you know, they've got the bells and whistles. They've got the pyro. They've got the, you know, all the technology and production aspects to put on great shows, and they do. Um, and, again, that's just where they are now. Here, again, they're not there. Yeah. Um, they, this is them rounding the corner to get there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, let me ask you this. Not many people in, 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 in wrestling history, revisionists, uh, will say, oh, hold on a minute here. I told, yes, I remember this now. Okay, The, the Nation. nation. Come through the crowd, shield style. Yeah. And you know what? Before you ask your question, I loved Ahmed Johnson joining the Nation of Domination. I, I thought was it was a good big too. Fan, but I just waited for that guy to turn bad for so long. Like, I dug it. Yeah, me too. I it dug it. it. I think big picture wise, and it didn't do well for him. But I thought that is a bad dude. You know what I mean? I don't care that he hates Farouk. I mean, that was a good rivalry too. We can talk about that some other time, but. You know, I I liked that. But so my question is: yeah. before the nation, you know, came into the picture here and made their way into this match, if there was one or maybe more than one individual out of these eight men that you felt could have attained more success out of the eight men in this match, it obviously had to have been Savio Vega. I wasn't going to say that, but that's a fair answer. Okay. I would have said crush. Yeah. Okay. However, I feel like that would have been an easy answer. The the answer I would have fished for would have been would have been uh, skull and eight ball. Really? Yeah. I thought they were a badass team. They okay. were some badass dudes, and I remember, you know, it, you know, they were big parts of the beginnings of TNA wrestling, and you know, being you know, big friends of Jeff Jarrett and having you know that legit tough guy, you know, moniker. Yep. I thought those could have been guys that could have done. A lot more. Um, As a team. Yes. Um, at, you know, okay, he's nine, eight years old. Am I thinking along those lines? Certainly not. No, no, no. Looking back on it, like you said, you could have done a lot with those guys. Um, you know, and you could almost look at them as a, as a you know, 20 years later, you're, you're looking at the Bludgeon Brothers. Yeah. Um, as far as, wow, those are just some... Big bastards that can just. I hate that name, up. by the way. I'm not a big fan of the name, or the hammers, but you know, that that, yeah. that could be another discussion for yeah, another time. Yeah, you know, it's it is what it is. So do you? So in your in your mind, going back to what you remember from this back in '97, I don't know about you, but me personally, I thought the potential of the whole gang warfare thing with all three gangs had some real intrigue to it and i was looking forward to seeing all three of these gangs mix it up and i just felt like it was very underwhelming 
and I just felt that like they didn't touch upon the gang stuff enough with these three groups because Savio was the leader of the Bariquas, Crush was the leader of the DOA, the two of them once together were part of Farouk's Nation of Domination, and I just felt like they did such a good job of building the split with Farouk getting rid of them and rebuilding the nation. And then after that, they put the two of them in their respective groups and had guys surrounding them. And aside from this match, I felt like the, the, the gang storyline between all three of these, three of these teams could have been a lot more than what, what, what we saw. Um, what did you What did you think uh, at the time? For what it was, I thought it was cool, and I think going back to the overall theme of what we talked about in the beginning, we're a tribal people, you know. And, I, and again, I'm not a philosopher in any way, but you know, this resonated with us, a group of people, uh-huh. Puerto Ricans or those who you know buy into the the biking culture, you know. And you saw that with Aces and Eights, and you know shows like the Sons of Anarchy. Yep. You know. Um, would that have been cooler now? Probably. But, yeah. again, this was in a time in wrestling, again, we're playing into that tribal mentality that is ingrained in human nature, grabbed a small part of the audience. And, you know, you had your Canadians and your Americans and you had your other subcultures out there that this played to. And so I thought on that level, it did really well. And you know what? They did it in WCW. They were the ones that kind of championed the idea. You had the NWO, you had the Wolfpack, you had the LWO. I know that all went around the NWO concept, but the Four Horsemen, you you had a group in almost... The Dungeon of Doom. Dungeon of Doom, you know, you had... You had a, a level... You had a, groups and people you could relate to or, mm-hmm. or, or, or get behind based on very surface aspects very superficial things whether it was the heritage whether it was their you know their their other aspects of culture and that was a quick match but again you know that that, i think that it was simple these are simple things this is me and what i do this is what our group does this is what we represent and we don't like what this group represents and you see the, the 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 melee between all three groups outside the ring now and I just felt like aside from this like it was forgotten about like like they almost forgot that like like Crush and the DOA almost forgot that like they hated the Bariquas or that they hated the nation and and, and vice versa you know what I mean like they were so in, intertwined with one another before they all split off and did their respective groups the, the three of those guys that I don't know. I just felt like the gang warfare. I thought I, I thought the gang warfare thing was kind of cool, and they didn't. I don't know. I just felt like it was. I guess they could have. They could have done more with it. Like that. Just for me personally, as a viewer, like they definitely could have done more with it. it in was, retrospect, yes. In high, you know, in the moment, it, it. I liked it for what it was, for sure. Um, and it continued. This was just the beginning of it because then you had stuff like DX and that sophomoric. You know, group of people. Come on, we know people that we grew up with that you would be like, yeah, those are the jocks. Mm-hmm. You know, they're the dickheads. You know, and, and man, what a. And while it was funny to see a group like DX just piss on their bikes, like, you know, man, that's a real dick thing to do. But at the same time, <laughs> it got over. It was awesome. And like, holy shit, they're pissing on their bikes. They're going to get their asses kicked. Once these dudes see what happened, and here we go. I know we just jumped to this, but they just showed, uh, we got Owen and, and Austin, which. 
you know, had a lot of implications moving forward. But uh, I will say here, I talked to you about how I didn't like Stone Cold for so long. Until, until the formation of the Hart Foundation, Owen Hart to me was the devil based on his, his, uh, his association or disassociation with Brett. Yep. So it was really cool to see someone as awesome as Owen was, and you had to respect that. Join forces with his brother, who was, you know, the man. Yeah. So this was. It was cool to see that, and again, in this in this scenario, it was I was Owen Hart all the way, two times Slammy Award winner. I mean, I back in '97, I I was I, I liked Stone Cold. Um, I even liked him as a bad guy. He's not. He wasn't. He wasn't the first bad guy that I liked in wrestling. Uh, that could go back to um, my thoughts on Arn Anderson. Arn Anderson was probably the first bad guy I ever really enjoyed in wrestling, and for some some odd reasons. <laughs> but Austin at the time, red hot. Um, I adjust, within the ninety six ninety seven time frame, my viewing habits became a little more sophisticated when it came to watching wrestling, where I wasn't so conditioned to like the good guys and boo the bad guys. Um, I was wanting to see some action, but also um, a, a good story that I could relate to. Not that I was any expert by any stretch of the imagination at that time, or do I think I am still currently, but. Um, that I think that ninety six ninety seven time frame was probably my my turning point for being a fan and being a little more sophisticated to what we saw on TV. I think probably the the, the time I really dug Austin was probably the Brian Pillman angle with the gun when he broke into his house. I just okay, thought that yeah. was I just thought that was really cool. Yeah. I mean, I was a big Pillman guy, but I thought it was cool that Austin, you know, even at gunpoint was <laughs> wanted to kill Brian Pillman and that's what like made me in some ways I guess respect Austin. And then of course, oh, of course the match with Brett and you know, that's something that you know, I'm sure we'll discuss on future episodes here, but uh I was a I was Austin all the way for this. Um and I think also, I was Austin all the way for this because of a point that you made earlier. Before the Hart Foundation, Owen was the devil. I didn't like Owen when I was a kid. I, I wasn't a Brett guy, but I was conditioned to like the good guys, and I like I enjoyed Brett. He wasn't my favorite, but I enjoyed watching him, and I didn't like Owen. So in '97, being a little more sophisticated, you know, watching this, Owen was. I guess you could say I was traditional in the sense I was cheering the good guy, even though Steve Austin really wasn't a good guy, and uh, I was booing the bad guys. We see Austin coming here. This is great. Yeah, you don't see a lot of this. Oh, and the cutting the promo part, you don't see. A lot. Well, actually, they've been they've been bringing the, some of that back to Raw and SmackDown, where they're in Gorilla and they get a little quick promo. Yeah. Um, but yeah, stuff like this, like little details, little ways you could just. Are you Shake prepared to kiss Owen Hart's backside if you lose? Like, oh, backside too. Yeah. What's a backside? Yeah, he cut. You know, like when you're when you when you're eight, you're like, it's his ass. Yeah. I know what it is. And and that was another thing too that obviously I think just drove people to 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 like Austin so much. And me personally, like he said the word ass on yeah, TV and wrestling. Like there was no filter with him, and that's what it was so different and cool at that time that you know it it resonated with a lot of teenage males, myself included, wanting to be you know just like him you know yeah. i almost in some ways you know 
at times when I would talk, I would, as a kid, to friends and to even to some teachers, you know, I would, you know, kind of throw some Steve Austin phrases in there. Yeah, That's like you knew I was a wrestling fan. Yeah, I mean, yeah. but. But I will say this, too. I think, you know, again, while I didn't like Steve Austin one bit, you know, at this stage, mm-hmm. you know, he, he was not that. And I don't want to say this in a way that downplays who he is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But for the longest time, even through Shawn Michaels' run as the champion and all that, and Owen being the heel gets ruins the celebration Ooh. there. Boom. Um, Boom. You, you knew he wasn't, like, he Austin flustered the Hart Foundation. Austin flustered, you know, Brett, which obviously led to the story, you know, being told over the course of this, you know, time of 1997. You... He was he was legitimate, you know what I mean, and everything about Austin from just his never, you know, say die attitude showed that, um, and I think he has to deserve, deserve credit for that. I don't, I don't think that he uh, at this point got that from me, but that was the overwhelming feeling amongst other people is that he was, while the Hart family, the Hart family was an established royal family in wrestling. And this guy was, before there was an authority to battle. That's he was he bucking got, the authority. He, he was he yeah. was battling the royal family as you know as it came to wrestling. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's again what rallied people to get behind Steve Austin is that that established family that had been built at least on WWF TV, TV for years was the Hart family. Now the it's. it's it, it's interesting that you 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 make that point because I I agree with you on on everything you said there. However, do you think Steve Austin's popularity starting out at, during this time period do you think it would have grown as big as it did if it wasn't for um the I wouldn't say lack of popularity, but the people's disdain for Bret Hart, because it, from what I remember, Bret just you, we brought it up at the beginning of this program, the crybaby aspect where he had just kind of complained that he would be getting screwed every which way, which in reality, even though I wasn't a Bret Hart fan, I agreed with him. He got screwed at the in-your-house pay-per-view against Sid. He got screwed at the Royal Rumble. He got screwed by Austin the night after the Final Four uh, and lost the title then. Do you think if his character wasn't um, bitching and complaining so much that the people and fans wouldn't get behind Austin so much? No, I think it's the exact opposite, actually. Okay. well, like it, it it's it, to me. I, I always thought it was why the hell are you guys cheering him? Yep. He cheated to win the Royal Rumble. He cheated. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. He screwed Brett out of the title against Sid. Yeah. He cheated. You know, and 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 on the on the flip side, there's the redeeming quality of do whatever it takes that Stone Cold did mm-hmm. that people resonated with. Yep. But for me, it was this guy's breaking all the rules. This guy's this guy's not doing what. The hero should be doing. Mm-hmm. The hero fights for what's right, and and you know, I mean, essentially that's what they do. And and he broke that mold, you know, famously. Um, 
so it, I think it's the opposite. I think it's it's how the crowd reacted to Steve that I think created what we're watching right now, mm -hmm. um, and eventually took the business into a whole different direction. That is, you know, to me, put Steve Austin on on a level all by himself. And and I think the biggest thing that got people to cheer Steve is unfortunately what happens at the end of this match when he breaks his neck. You know, because then you get to the aspect of his neck injury and his never say die attitude of I'm going to go out there and give it my all and, and be the baddest as you know, the toughest SLB and he's being restricted mm -hmm. from that. And that's, that was the, the, the conception of Austin McMahon is I can't let you wrestle, Steve. You, you, you have an injured neck. That's right. You know, I don't care what these people think about you. You have to sit on the sidelines. Yeah. People wanted Steve and Steve played to that very well. And I thought, and that's just, that's me saying that now. And, you know, that's what made Steve Austin, that's what took Steve Austin to the next level. Unfortunately, it took a broken neck to do that. Um, I don't think they would have been far off on his trajectory if this didn't happen, but it did, it did make... He would have gotten there. It just might have gone a different way if, if uh, this didn't happen. Yeah, yeah, I would say that. Um, okay. Definitely. But I don't think Brett, I, I, like I said, I think it's in the reverse. Brett becoming what Brett became and not you know, this stage of his career was because of the, the, the groundswell for a guy like Steve Austin. Now you, you brought it up during, during that point that, you know, you looked at Austin as, you know, the bad guy that, you know, that cheated and he, he, he screwed Brett out of the title a few times. And right. I'd made mention of that earlier. Was that in your mind at the time in 1997, were you, were you kind of like me in some ways where you had a hard time not getting with the times, but adjusting, I guess you could say, to the to the way things to the way things were going in terms of your viewing habits as a fan? No, I think that was me being engulfed in it, me uh, suspending my disbelief. You being I'm, such a big I'm, Brett guy. I'm that, in it. Yeah. In it, OK. You know what I mean, um, in hindsight. Yeah. But I think overall, like that's. That's buying into the whole presentation. Okay. And uh, I will I will equate Steve Austin's Royal Rumble win unjustly winning it over Bret Hart to what I think your generation would talk about as an injustice of Hulk Hogan losing to Andre the Giant and the whole crooked ref situation. That was just a grave injustice that should have been corrected. And... It was. That's a he great. He won the title. That's that's a great parallel. And they they but they jumped on top of it with Steve Austin for his deep hatred of Bret Hart, screwing him again, and that got them the WrestleMania 13 and the and the and the classic they put on there. But like I said, I think it was that's what that moment was to me. And I remember watch we watched that pay per view live, and that was, you know, that's. That's, you know, you can put that into it, you know, I'll, I'll make a sports comparison. You look at like something like, you know, Des Bryant and that catch no catch game, you know, when, yep. when you know, and, you know, and I was a Packer fan. And so it's on the other side of it. Yeah. You know, unjustly, he was that catch was taken away from Des Bryant and the game and the course of history could have changed with a cowboy victory over Aaron Rodgers and the Packers. But um, I could, that's the same sentiment. That's the emotion that getting invested in a, in a team or a person brings out of you. Mm -hmm. And that's how I felt about, you know, all of Brett's injustices. Because Bret Hart in 1995, 1996, those that have been corrected. 
because Bret Hart was deserving of those accolades. But in this changing time, it was, nope, nope, that's not how it works now. Steve Austin won, and off and running we went. You know, those are great parallels you, you had mentioned to my era. Hogan losing to Andre with the, 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 the twin referees. Uh, I remember as a kid watching that and, you know, thinking, obviously, well, they got to reverse the decision. It's clear as day on the replay that the referee counted really fast and there were two referees. And then, you know, Jack Tunney and the, and the, the, the World Wrestling Federation institute this tournament. And it's like, well... When's Hogan going to get his shot at the belt? Like, he's got to now wrestle in a tournament to do it. And the guy who helped orchestrate the screw job, two of them are also going to be in this tournament, too. Yeah. Like, yeah. even at, you know, 1988, at five or six years old, I was like, why is DiBiase getting an opportunity? Why is why is Andre going to wrestle for the belt? Hogan should be the champion, you know? As much as I, I love Randy Savage, too, and I was glad he won, like... I wasn't really a big fan of the tournament at WrestleMania four. And that's a great parallel you brought up there. I just had to, you know, mention my my my, my five year old thoughts at the time yeah, and that's, when, again, when that's, Hogan that's got screwed. That's how I felt and yeah. because this is the show where Brett captures that title, that was kind of like the, the gratification of yes, finally. It was you know, he hadn't gotten the title since he had left, you know, in ninety six. Mm-hmm. And he had pretty much been on track to get there upon his return and every which way you know this sob blocked it and ironically enough ironically enough and we'll see it later you know after this match in the main event ironically enough brett winning the title came from came with help from the referee Shawn michaels who was one of the guys that brett accused of screwing him a few times before. So, yeah. so there's heat. That's, yeah. There's the heat for you. Yeah. You know, you complain about all your injustices, Brad, but look how you won the belt. Yeah. You're and, a hypocrite. But you know what? Eight it, years old? I didn't care. Yeah, it didn't matter. Brett to you. was yeah. champion. Brett was your guy. Yeah. yeah. No, I get it. So I get it. I understand. That was, um, that's what made this one yeah. such a good show for me, just seeing that kind of all come full circle. Now the champion, the rightful champion, has got the belt. Um, but, uh, you know, back to this, though, that, again, people don't really talk about how much of a, of a game changer this match was. Like I said, going back to the broken neck and where this catapulted Austin to, um, he became bigger than the title he ended up winning um, here. Yeah, I mean, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, if it wasn't for this neck injury, like, oh, we, you know, we said it earlier. Uh, he'd have gotten there, but it just been it would just been in a different, within a different manner. But and you know what? I'm watching this now. This is actually a pretty decent little match. Well, this I mean? well, this was when Austin wrestled more instead of you know he he implemented his brawling stone cold style, but this neck injury and essentially you know both his knees not being so great to him in later years really in a way slowed him down but as it, it was a blessing at the same time because the stone cold character didn't need to wrestle you know he was the he, he was you know a, an, an ass kicker 100 percent. so uh i mean it was no it, it was no secret that the, the talent and the ability that he had to uh to be at the top, so to speak, but his wrestling ability and his skill, um, 
in the beginning of his career were first. You know, now it was it took a backseat to his character, as we see Austin going for a clothesline DDT by Owen Hart. And it's interesting to watch this match now, like you had said, Justin, because, uh, you know, it's a pretty damn good match based on the wrestling ability alone. Austin was, you know, in his stunning Steve days, he was a great in-ring technical wrestler. Whereas, you know, in the Stone Cold era, he was a kick-punch, stunner, brawling type of guy, and it worked. And it was something that uh, worked well for his character. But looking back, watching this match now, even knowing that, you know, what we're going to see, unfortunately, would be the turning point for his character with that the, the pile driver causing the neck injury. It's almost in some ways. I get skittish watching Austin taking some suplexes and that German suplex he took earlier from Owen and, you know, post this neck injury, Austin didn't move his feet a whole hell of a lot. Um being on the offense, you know, being on the defensive when guys were putting him in moves and, you know, there was no pile drivers anymore. Definitely no tombstone jawbreaker, a modified stunner by Stone Cold Steve Austin onto Owen Hart um, as Austin lying on the map. But yeah, post this, this injury, Austin was, I guess the, you could say the neck injury in some ways was a blessing uh, in disguise for his character because he was, such a brawler and it fit the stone cold mold that stone cold steve austin didn't need to put you in a headlock or he didn't need to suplex you or he didn't need to give you a drop kick stone cold used what brought him to the dance you know kicks and punches and the stunner and that was pretty much the end of his owen went for a russian leg sweep into a pinning combination two count now we have a headlock rear naked headlock by owen hooking austin's leg as the referee here is going for He's looking for Austin to, to, to give up. And as you can tell, Stone Cold and his never-say-die attitude, like you had said, uh, definitely not giving up in this case here. Uh, one thing I do want to mention regarding this match, and uh, I would be remiss to say that um, Owen Hart and uh, Steve Austin, after this match, based on the injury, was something that... Uh, you know, they didn't have the greatest relationship, and it was unfortunate because I really felt like even with the neck injury, these two guys could have capitalized on a future rivalry with one another. And uh, I, I would have been, I would have dug an Owen Austin attitude era, 1998 post Austin's title, when I would have dug a, a, a rivalry between the two of these guys. Um, yeah, me too. I think it was only logical. Like, very much in the same way that it was only logical that Owen would go after Sean after the screwjob. Like, Owen, Brett's, Brett leaving left a hole at the top of the card. And who better to fill that hole as someone like Owen who was deserving to be there? You know what I mean? Yeah. And then, you know, you don't see a lot of those, like, those uh, feet on the ropes angles here. Like I made mention of earlier, Austin, you know, you said this was a great match so far. Oh, and I think this is the moment right here where he goes in for it. Oh, encounters. Got him up for a tombstone and boom, right there. At the time, didn't know the severity of it. Just thought like, wow, that's an interesting way to do the tombstone. Um, you know, Owen, Owen had done the tombstone a bunch of other times too. 
He did? Yeah. Well, I rem- he, he would do a, um, he would do it more like The Undertaker, though. Um, okay. But it was done as, like, like how, I want to say he had done it in some Bret Hart matches, too. He, okay. He, but it was never done, like, as a finisher. It was never done with any exclamation. It was just part of, part of the match. Um, but I think in a match with guys like Owen and Bret, you know, that's just the hard-hitting style that put a move like that on a different level as far as, like, it wasn't the finisher. Mm-hmm. That's, that's certainly not to underscore what The, the Undertaker does. Yeah. But um, it, was, it was just within the arsenal of, yep. of a guy like Owen who, you know, hypocritically I would appreciate it as such a great wrestler at this stage after, you know, three, four years of saying he was, you know, the devil incarnate. Yeah. And I know here he was probably instructed to kind of pose a little bit. And, all right, we're going to get a little... Kill some time while he yeah. gets back, gets his bearings back together. One, two, three. And as Austin would say, the the, the most suck-ass finish in the history of, of pro wrestling, Stone Cold Steve Austin defeating Owen Hart for the Intercontinental Championship. Uh, aside from that moment there with the tombstone... It was a pretty good good wrestling match. And this was a turning point in some ways. The injury in some ways became a blessing for him because his style had changed. You know, he didn't move his he didn't leave his feet a whole lot. And he relied on, you know, the Stone Cold character relied on kicks and punches and the stunner. Um, you didn't see a whole lot of wrestling from Steve Austin anymore um, after this match. It was very basic uh, brawling. But most top guys like Hogan, Cena, Roman Reigns, now. Most top guys had their three or four moves in their arsenal, and that was the end of it. So it wasn't, I guess you could say, at the time, Austin changing his style up maybe had something to do with the injury, but Uh, by the same token, it didn't. Right, I was going to say it certainly probably became that. However, like you said, you you go, you you look at just about anybody, and, you know, that's, you know, you know, steered the ship for WWF, WWE, you know, they, they, the style you work is, is a style of longevity versus a style of, of wowing them every night. Mm-hmm. And I would bet that if this not had happened and Austin still made it to the top, that his style would have changed. Yeah. You would have oh, I think so too. pulled back in a lot of ways and where they would have said, look, Steve, again, he'd been in the business for eight years eight, nine years at this point, um, you know, we talked about Pillman in the same way, it would have been dialed back a little bit. Yeah. Um, hey, Steve, you've got to work 250, 300 nights a year working on top. You know, you're going to have to pick your spots. Yeah. And I think that would have still happened, you know, six months, seven months later. But um, but it made sense with that Austin character. You know what I mean? Could oh, you imagine wow, Stone yeah. Cold Steve Austin, the the – Tough SOB, the beer drinking Texas rattlesnake, delivering suplexes and headlock takedowns and and drop kicks and things like that. Things that he did when he was stunning Steve Austin. You couldn't see him doing that. So no, no, you're right. But I think people still would have connected with him in the same. Oh, I'm not saying they wouldn't have. But what I'm saying is, is that his him changing his style was meant. It was inevitable. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was inevitable. It was meant to happen. Yeah, but also too, I, I think people are willing to forgive certain things for certain people, mm-hmm. and that still happens to this day. Yep. You know, you look at a guy like John Cena, who is a fantastic wrestler, and I said it, he is. Roman Reigns is in the same category, and 
Hold on. Is that the noise of the internet breaking down currently <laughs> right now? Is there a holdup on the internet wrestling community? That, that, that Did the power go out? What's going on? Well, you know what? I'm going to turn it back on and say that those guys put on phenomenal matches. Oh, look at that. There we go. Again, um, I think I heard it. Light switch. But <laughs> I think it's just it, those guys, again, you don't need to work that style. Um, you don't need to go kill yourself every night. No, you don't. Um, and people's personal bias towards someone they connect with forgives those things and that goes back to Hulk Hogan yeah or Bruno San Martino mm-hmm. no reason by no means are they mat technicians or they're gonna put on five oh, no, matches never. you know especially in, the, in those days of the territories you know you ask a guy like Ric Flair if you went up to New York you worked a nine ten minute eleven minute match yeah if you worked in in Georgia or Florida it was 25, 25 30, 30 minutes 30, 40 yeah. minutes yeah be an hour um so it's just that it was just different depending on where you went. Mm-hmm. And I think that you, regardless of that, though, the bias of a fan towards a guy like Steve that they cared for and loved would have forgiven the, the illogical aspect of being a great wrestler. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. People would, no. like, people would have looked past, well, why is he... You know, putting a double arm scissors on Owen Hart. Oh no, he was or, so you know he, I mean? his, his character back. his character grabbed you and captivated you so much that I don't think he would have given a shit if he took a dump in the middle of the ring and then stepped on it with his foot. You know what I mean? Here's something that I did not like as a kid: the Patriot. I was not. <laughs> I just I thought the Patriot kind of during this USA Canada storyline came a little too late for me. Um, and I didn't really see, I didn't see the appeal in it. I was Shawn Michaels, Steve Austin, Shamrock, Legion of Doom, those guys, all the way as the, you know the, the the top guys, Undertaker that would you know face the Heart Foundation. I could give a shit about the Patriot. Yeah, but I think that was by design, and maybe they were catching on to what was happening and saying, you know what, let's bring a parody of something that would have worked in 1986, mm-hmm. and bring it to 1997, and say, you know what. Like, this is what's right and just in the world. And just let it land the way it did. And I don't think it was any... I don't think there was any plans for the Patriot to, you know, headline WrestleMania. No, no, no. He was more of a a tool to get over Brett's character, get over that entire angle. Okay. Passport. That's a pretty dope passport. (laughs) He's actually a dual citizen. I remember reading somewhere he's both... I know because his mom was an American citizen. His dad was a Canadian citizen. Mm -hmm. So... With all the, the, the jokes and, 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 and heat and tension this all brought, Bret Hart is a, is a proud American citizen, maybe not as proud as a Canadian, but um, yeah, it's just interesting to hear those things years later. Um, and then we got this Hall of Fame squad here. Very underrated threesome. I'm not big on the three-man booth, I'll be honest with you. I think it can get a little crowded and a little convoluted at times, but... Uh, Three guys that that did it very well, and they maybe all had their role. Yeah, they all knew their role. If Vince you. was like the Al Michaels. He drove the car. Yeah, you know I mean, he steered the direction. Yeah. He was a good host. Jr. was the co-pilot, and King was in the back seat with his, you know, <laughs> pretty much with his with his with his with bullshit. His parachute on. Yeah. Man, look at that little picture there—the Undertaker with the, the cowboy hat and the tear. Yeah, it looks like well, he bought you know, that cowboy hat at the Big E. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then you got King here, and 
you know, I think this was around the time where you knew Bret Hart was a bad guy because, you know, the King's certainly talking about, you know, all the aspects of, of what makes Bret Hart who he is and why he's right and just and how a guy like Shawn Michaels is going to, you know, be a threat to that, unjustly, but, if you will. But then on the other side of that, you, you saw how big of a hypocrite he was because if you go back and remember the Canadian Stampede pay-per-view the month prior when they were in Calgary and the main event was the Hart Foundation against you know Austin's team that he led, Jerry Lawler played the role of the the bad guy commentator and he was against Brett. It was like three weeks prior in the United States, he, he had sung his praises as being, you know, this guy that understood what was wrong with America and wrestling fans. And then they go to Calgary and all of a sudden it's like, Oh, I hate your stinking guts. It's back to 1993 all over again. I had kind of two thoughts there as you were saying that the first being, well, that makes sense. You know, he wants to put over the heel, you know what I mean? But at the same time, you know, Jerry Lawler is no fan of anyone that aligns himself with the Hart family. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the geriatric jokes about Stu and Helen being a, such a cheerleader for Owen and just obviously his history with Brett being the catalyst for all that. Mm-hmm. Um, it it, it, it kind of made sense. You know, would they, they wouldn't like Jerry Lawler if he walked into, you know, walked in downtown Calgary. You know what I mean? No. So he kind of had to embrace that role even just for one night and i know they kind of did a lot of back and forth here at this time anyways it just made sense how much of a fence jumper he was oh, of course yeah and that, with his character exactly, and being right. being that that being a good attribute to bad guys heels and wrestling whatever you want to call them um and there's brett with the canadian flag um and then we've got a lot of these jamokes from new jersey doing their thing and uh like that one right there in the red shirt (laughs) um i think too that this is one match one you know marquee that you didn't see enough of was bret hart and the undertaker i know they had other pay-per-view matches but you never really you know like if this was 2018 they would have saved that match for wrestlemania you know yeah like that this is just like they would, you know, they just, those are, those are two stalwarts, you know what I mean? Before The Undertaker became this legend of sorts, that was kind of Brett's role, you know, being the, the 13, 14-year WWF veteran, mm-hmm. loyalist to WWF and Vince McMahon. That was kind of his role. Yeah, Undertaker was, was just like everyone else on the card. Well, no, in, I in some respect, not, he didn't have he that was, legend. He wasn't revered as like that that veteran that went out there and, and, you know, this is seven years into his WWF run. Everybody was hopping around. Yeah. And two didn't. No, they didn't. But, but on TV, like, like you just said, he's not looked, he would in 2018, he's looked at as obviously, you know, an icon, a legend and as you know, first ballot hall of famer, even know what the fuck that is. But, um, back in 97, yes, he was the undertaker and he was a, larger than life character but he was also just another guy on the roster with everyone else at the same time he didn't he wasn't they didn't look at him and be like the legendary undertaker you know what i mean are they playing the canadian national anthem here yes yeah they would be doing that because it'd be only fair since brett had to sit through the you know national anthem of the united states of america during the opening of this of this uh this broadcast here classic classic just heat generator really set the table for what's going on and for what it's worth the undertaker wasn't walking around waving the american flag around no 
he was just he was just a pawn in this in some ways. As, as funny as that is to say, yeah. yeah. Um, and you know he had his own shit going on too, you know. But you know what I like about this segment towards the end is the as the the Canadian national anthem is ending, you see Brett kind of there it is right there, you know last few words of the anthem with that like smirk on his face almost like that smirk of disgust with the american wrestling fans like at, at the same time displaying his canadian pride like i just thought it, it that shot right there for me personally like epitomized like what bret hart's character at that time was representing and that was like his morals and 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 his canadian upbringing that it was higher and what's the right word uh like holier than that holier than thou there yeah. you go holier than thou to the united states and, and someone who is not holier than thou um albeit a lot of wrestling fans may feel differently with me sean michaels the special guest referee in this match yeah and i think too they were very i liked how they walked the line of the real life aspect of obviously yeah. recent events yep the, the famous Hartford, Connecticut fight. Yes. Um, and I, we, I, I say it that way, obviously, because we're, we're born and raised here in Hartford. Um, you know, I can always say, yeah, that happened here. You know yep. what I mean? Oh, yeah. Not a lot of wrestling events happen yeah. here in Hartford outside of, you know, the biggest being probably WrestleMania 11, which... Jim Cornette tells a great story about his accounts of that fight in the locker room. At the time, I believe he was on the writing team or he was contributing somehow. God damn. Yeah. And uh, he tells a story about how uh, apparently the fight, you know, took place in the locker room and Jerry the King Lawler was on the toilet taking a shit. <laughs> and he got up off the off the pot to break up the fight and he's coming out of the locker room pulling his tight because he wore his tights for the, uh, yeah. the broadcast. So he was all dressed in, in full character, pulls his tights up to go break up the break up the fight without what allegedly to Cornette. Cornette says that Lawler uh, forgot to wipe his ass uh, in in the midst of yeah, trying to for a good story. break it up. But then I guess that was the same. And that was the same instance where Michaels uh, grabbed a piece of his hair that Brett pulled out of his head and slammed it on Vince's desk. And that was when he told Vince that I don't want to be here anymore. I want to go work with my friends. And then, and then Corny saved it. Corny saved it and put it in a Ziploc bag. And I, if I'm not mistaken, I believe he said that I believe his ex-wife it's still at his ex-wife's house for some reason. He's been divorced for many years, so I don't know why Shawn Michaels hair was in a Ziploc bag. But I just found that story to be uh, rather amusing. Good, good foresight on that guy. You think he might want to like? I wonder if he brought that with him to the Hall of Fame last year. Like, hey, if you're looking to like archive this, you have Sean's hair. Remember that fight? <laughs> Let's put it in a glass case, yeah. and people could take pictures but with it. it access. It's funny to see, like, again with you know, speaking of Hartford, Connecticut, The Undertaker, another historic moment, um, debuting in know, Hartford, Connecticut. Being, being so close to the Civic Center in my, in my capacities in life you know professionally and personally like i always drive by that building or i'd always stand outside that building like where in that building did these things happen you know what i mean like where like where were they have you been in the locker room and backstage in that Um, building that's the other thing as far as i've ever gotten in the harford civic center backstage would be the the tunnel so I don't know the, the how the building looks, what it is inside. I do know because I've worked in the building on a number yeah, of occasions. Yeah, I do know per, from from ex, from those who've worked in the building. I met a. This is a, a way off tangent. I was working in a bar about two years ago, three years ago maybe, 
um, and there was a Justin Bieber concert in uh, playing at the Hartford Civic Center directly across the street, and I had uh, the fun and pl pleasure to serve uh, the roadies, the truck drivers of the, of the tour, mm -hmm. the tour with the Bieber tour worldwide, and Hartford, Connecticut, in their eyes, has the distinction of being the worst arena to ever put on a show of any type based on it's just age and how it's built and designed. So a lot of Hartford in my mind as it relates to sports and entertainment has a lot of bad distinctions. Like I say, the worst WrestleMania of all time was WrestleMania live, <laughs> live in Hartford, Connecticut. Um, it's the worst arena ever, according to these guys. Yeah. Um, the fight with Brett and Sean. Um, like, you know, the one thing I would say is pretty darn cool is obviously the, the birthplace of The Undertaker. Boom. That was yeah, that, like, like concussion I, I always pyro. Like Brett does here. Like, He's like, fuck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I thought it was more like, oh, I'm so scared. Like, yeah. So, like, sarcastically, like, kind of just, like, no-selling the, the whole aspect there. Um, but, again, like, you know, being from Hartford here, it was it, it's cool to kind of, like, find little nuggets of, like, history that happened there. And I think a lot of fans do that wherever they are. You know, so and so had this match and this in our, in our building, and that 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 lends itself to you know how the territories used to work. You know, I remember the night I was at this building when yep. so and so won, and you know, while I don't have a, a great Matt classic for you, I do have Sean and Brett fighting in a locker room while Jerry the King Lawler's dropping a deuce. So I'll stick with that. <laughs> everything everything you just said there in terms of your memories of what took place in that building are things that I've thought of when I've worked in that building. Uh, for those of you unaware, I, I spent a lot of time in the restaurant business, and I used to work for a good buddy of mine who had a, a catering company. And he, he had the account with the local promoter to work um, all the major concerts and events in, in some of the surrounding arenas and amphitheaters. And we would cook for uh, the, the roadies and the, the bus drivers and the truck drivers and the talent and the artists that were appearing. And so we had done a number of concerts and special events over the years, especially in the, uh, the XL Center, which is now called the used to be the old Hartford Civic Center. And I'd walk around that building. And I remember one time I was setting up a dressing room. I forget for what concert it was. And I walked in the dressing room. I was like, is this the dressing room where Jonathan Taylor Thomas beat Bob Backlund in that famous game of chess at WrestleMania 11? <laughs> and then I went to another dressing room. I was like, wait a minute. This was the dressing room where I believe Undertaker took his tobacco chew in that spit in the cup and dumped it over William Regal's head on an episode of SmackDown. <laughs> I mean, I would do stuff like that. And then I was fortunate enough to work for WCW Nitro when it was there that night in uh, August of 98, the night the Ultimate Warrior debuted. And I met all the guys and I walked around the building and, you know, I, I could tell you stories for days about my experience that day here. As we're underway, don't want to get too off topic here. That's something that we'll discuss on a future episode of Kicking Out of Two. Maybe interactions with some of our favorite, wrestler, favorite wrestlers in person. As Undertaker and Bret Hart, as the old saying goes, Undertaker, house of fire, lighten up the hitman as he... Uh, Let's the special referee Shawn Michaels know who's the real boss in this match here. But great point earlier. Another great point you bring up, and you bring in a lot of great points here on on our premiere episode of Kicking Out at Two. Not a whole lot of Brett and Shawn in this era, or Brett and Taker in this era. Uh, they had their 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 Royal Rumble 
championship match in 96 a year prior to this and then they had this match and as far as i know those are the only two singles matches that they had on american pay-per-view they had that one night only match at the one night only pay-per-view in england uh, just a, about a month and a half after this but um something that i that i thought we would at the time we would see more of because of how big a stars they were yeah they very they very much ran parallel to each other throughout the most most parts of their career yeah both of their careers they never but at the same time think of it this way you know they were never really at the top at the same time until he got about around here Mm -hmm. undertaker made his rise and he was very much at the top very quickly but where was Bret hart he was wrestling mr perfect and and climbing the ranks on that level yep and then when the undertaker kind of took a back seat and was you know, stuck with working with, you know, the butt plugs of giant Gonzalez and, <laughs> and, and, you know, those characters, you know, which the butt plugs, which I think is probably what endeared him to, to most people in the company that, all right, if, all right, let's give this guy a couple good runs on top. He really had to deal with a lot of BS. Um, you know, while that was going on, that's when Brett cemented himself as who I think at the time was probably the biggest, the, 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 the top guy in wrestling. You know, you look at, you know, at least perceptually speaking, you know, you look at guys now, AJ Styles, uh, even outside of the WWE, people rave about a Kenny Omega. While they may have not been, you know, presented like a Roman Reigns or a John Cena, those, I think, Bret Hart was still considered, you know, as big of, if not bigger than a Hulk Hogan at that time because yeah. of where they were prioritizing their characters and, 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 and their stories. Mm-hmm. He became the guy. Yeah. And even though he may have not main evented shows as the WWF champion and he had to, again, take the backseat to Hulk, he was still the man, probably from about the time he won the belt the first time till he rightfully took that place at WrestleMania 10. And then from then on, he didn't look back. I know Sean was nipping at his heels at that point, too, but... I mean, again, you had him and Sean kind of really stayed away a lot from each other with the with the one exception of that Survivor Series 92 match after Brett won the belt the first time yeah. in 93, 94 and 95. The two of them were really running parallel to each other as well. I mean, Sean was kind of holding down the, the fort when it came to the Intercontinental title scene in those in those years. Uh, and then, of course, Brett was, you know, on top with the WWF championship. But it wasn't until the build up to WrestleMania 12 is when they really started becoming more familiar with each other in singles roles. Um, yeah. But you know what? That's what makes dream matches. Yep. You know what I mean? Yeah. Is, is, is you keep them apart. Yeah. You find ways to let them build themselves up and then they converge. What was the last true dream match in wrestling that you remember in recent memory? Dream match in wrestling. Uh, that's a good one. Um, I think they tried it with, with Shinsuke and AJ here. I think that was a little too soon. Yeah. Um, and I don't think it... Didn't live up to it, in my opinion. I don't think it went the way we wanted it to. Um, everyone everyone wanted to see 45 minutes... We set the bar min- for ourselves. Yeah. Everyone wanted to see 45 minutes of uh, the, that Wrestle Kingdom match. But you know what? And that wasn't happening at WrestleMania. I think is even more important to what makes a dream match that... And I think it's hard to really ignore anything outside of uh, Cena and The Rock. You know? Yep. 
I remember that's sitting, probably the best. I, yeah, I'd I have to agree. I remember watching that. You know, where we were, we were there at, at you know Sun Life Stadium, Land Shark Stadium, Hard Rock Cafe, whatever this or that. Down there in Miami, Joe Robbie, um, and I just remember while that was a very good show and it was all good and great and you know end of an era this and you know what have you. Once that match got going, it was like okay business is about to happen you know what i mean what's about to happen in the next 30 45 minutes is going to really dictate how this show went mm-hmm. um and while i don't think the match was by any stretch a, a dave Meltzer tokyo dome classic i think it did well oh I, oh you know what i mean 100 and they and they built going back to the the theme here they they built on the tribal aspect of people's favorites yeah you were either the rock or you were either team bring it or you were either c nation yeah Um, we saw a lot of that like fan base like as much as it didn't come across that way on tv being in in miami and rock's hometown you and i and 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 others that we were with that weekend it felt like the fan base was split and divided that there was equal amount of rock fans and equal amount of Cena fans because of the enormity of the event and the amount of people that were there to witness it. Yeah, there was a, and I've, I could probably name a few other matches off the off hand that had this air of it, but there was a palpable tension about that match. Like the mood changed. I don't know what the match was. Oh, there was the, what was it? The Funkadactyl little dance show oh with uh brodus yeah 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 and and that was the buffer to get us ready for what was about you know for what was once in a lifetime and then once you knew that was coming down the pike it was all right fun and games are over yeah you know this is what we all really paid to see and over a year in making you know the the fun's over now and even as a fan you you buy into that and say you know what this is what i paid my damn money for yeah um Outside of everything else they put on to be a great show, this was the dream match that people wanted to see. That was what was on the poster when we when we walked through the airport in Miami when you got there at WrestleMania that time. You know, yeah. I mean, that's what, like you said, that's what everyone paid their money to see, and probably this match. You could have gotten something like this down. You know, that's back to the original point. This could have been something like that. Yeah, Bret Hart and the Undertaker for so for a myriad of reasons. You could have gotten that same. Same conflict. Yeah. Um, and I think because of how good they both were, it could have been as simple as who was better. Yeah. You know, you didn't have to have America or, you know, titles in the play. You could have just taken their body of work and said, pick a side because these guys are going to clash. With the exception of the stipulations for this match with, you know, Brett not being allowed to wrestle in the United States if he doesn't win the title, Michaels not being allowed to wrestle in the United States if he is biased against Brett, um, this match really wasn't based on USA versus Canada. Oh, we got to, and to that point, we've got a, a red-headed Paul Bearer making his presence. Known. One of many moving parts in this storyline that I think this match doesn't get enough love from wrestling fans um, because you had, like you said, the real-life conflict between Brett and Sean and Sean's involvement as the referee. Brett 
basically declaring that he deserved to be the champion in order to get an opportunity at Undertaker because I don't think he had to win any kind of match, any kind of number one contenders match, if I recall, to get this opportunity. Undertaker being the pawn, but then, like you said, Paul Bearer entering the picture, and Paul Bearer, who had a long-standing history with Undertaker being his manager and then eventually his rival uh, as he managed Mankind, Paul Bearer throwing in the 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 proverbial monkey in the wrench in terms of mind games by alluding to the fact that Undertaker has a brother that is potentially alive and that's throwing him off so there's all these things that are like kind of hanging over the buildup of this match that to a lot of people a lot of wrestling fans nowadays my opinion i think it would be overwhelming for them if all these things took place in in, in one storyline heading into this match yeah whereas back then for guys who are too good for that yeah i think i feel like some fans would be like oh that's way too much to to, to follow and and to to, to be able to grasp and understand but I think it all fits so nicely and so well you know as we see a chop block by the hitman after That's vintage Bret Hart yeah but no I think yeah like you said it, it, it all of these things make the match more interesting yep I don't think it hurts the match per se no I no no I, I don't think so either I believe like you said I think that would be the argument in today's day and age why can't you let these guys just wrestle? Like, yeah, why does Paul Bear need to be involved? Yeah. Why does Sean need um, to be, you know, shit like that? It's it's a nitpicking thing that I think people would say, like, oh, well, you know, that, that, that you see, he was only there for 30 seconds. The rest just took What was the out. point of doing that? Yeah. yeah. And that 30 you know, seconds is crucial to what eventually would become that Undertaker Paul Bear story that bounces off after this match. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 you know, you know, Kane's coming. You don't know when. So you have that in the back of your mind is, whoa. What it's if, a little reminder. What, yes, exactly. You know? And then with Brett and his 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 whole deal with the Heart Foundation, you know, obviously he can't. You know, he's he's limited as far as rules are concerned. But it it's a you know potentially that as a bad guy, what does he have up his sleeve? Yeah. Now you're, and then Sean adds that same element. Yeah. Oh yeah. It, you know, and throughout this whole episode, you have you know. In, in great detail discuss your fandom and your love for Bret Hart you know and, and rightfully so um, have you have you seen the uh, the uh, the collections on the network speaking of which here, with here we go Bret and Sean the Bret and Sean rivalry um, they show a lot of like never before seen matches on like co- uh, yeah, it's, it's, collection yeah if you go into the collection section there's a Bret Hart Shawn Michaels rivalry and it goes back to like matches they had against each other as part of the Hart Foundation and the Rockers I think they even have the full match of when the top rope broke from that Saturday yep. night's main I event in its entirety saw, if this probably came out a while ago right yeah, I'd probably say like within the last year, I think it came out. I think of, I did see. But there's a lot of like hidden matches like I'd never seen before. Stuff from like Coliseum video that like I wouldn't put it up there, obviously, with the Iron Man match or even the screw job per se. But there's some pretty cool little gems of Brett and Sean, like from a steel cage match on Coliseum home video that was like from 93 or maybe 94 or something like that. Right. Some really good some stuff that you want to as a fan of Bret Hart, I think you'd. You'd, you'd really dig and want to check say out. I checked out a lot of that, and, and, and again, being the, 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 the wrestle Bret Hart holic that I am, you just come across all that over the course of your life and consume it to the point where you see it and you're like, okay, I've seen it. Yeah. And I'll check it out. And I, you know, I, I want to say I did that. 
Um, usually, whenever they, they they release something on the network, I usually scroll through it, pick yeah. out what I like, and probably in that instance more so than the others, it's all right. I'm just gonna press play and let it roll because yeah. there's nothing here I'm gonna hate. Um, and I it, it, was this in that this match? Yeah. I probably not. I feel like it probably wasn't. I don't it was think important to the I don't rivalry. think yeah, it was. I don't th- I don't think it wasn't it was definitely important to the rivalry. I don't think it was a part of the collections, but there were just some like matches that I'd never seen before. Like I yeah. think there was a cage match on wrestling challenge between the two or it was like a Coliseum home video exclusive right. um between these two. Uh just some really fun stuff that like I didn't know existed that I've seen the screw job. I've seen the Iron Man match. I've seen, you know, the even some of the 97 stuff on Raw, like I said, the super kick into the wheelchair. But right. I was really fascinated by some of the stuff I had never seen before from the two of them. Um, another interesting moving part into the story with Owen Hart and Brian Pillman representing the Hart Foundation, kind of showing their support for Brett at the same time uh, letting their... Uh, Letting their presence be well known to uh, the referee Shawn Michaels here. Another important part of this match here, as we see Undertaker now fighting his way out of that. And you could argue that leg lock. like in this age of the Undertaker, this is kind of when he kind of, as he retooled and morphed and evolved, you know, he 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 added this aspect of his game to it, like the ground game. You know, I know he gets the moniker of being, you know, one of the deadliest strikers in history and certainly won't take that away from him, but obviously his longevity comes with just being able to to change simul- it up. Yeah, and assimilate to the times. Yep. That's why, you know, while you while we can all argue that, you know, he's had his he's had his best in front of him and or, you know, behind him rather, mm-hmm. um, you can argue, you know, especially with something like what happened with him and Roman Reigns last year at WrestleMania, that, oh, well, you know, what does he need to do this for? And you know what? He can do it forever. You know, yeah. He's got his greatest hits. I liked his match with John Cena at WrestleMania. It, I dug me, that segment. To me, it was it was The Undertaker's greatest hits. Snake yeah. Eyes, Old School, Chokeslam, Tombstone, Last Ride. Man, but if, it's, I felt it's like all... it, it, it's going to lead to something bigger at some point between um, the two of them. But if it doesn't, it's not the end of the world. Right. Uh, as we see here, an interesting point in this match where Undertaker had, at least he thought he had Brett beaten, and Michaels was distracted dealing with the outside issues, which is going to be an, uh, a crucial part of the story that uh, leads to the finish that we'll see coming up shortly. Yeah, and that's another thing, too. Like, what this birthed for two months of before Sean and Brett was. Hell in a Cell and yep. In Your House Ground Zero was it? Yeah. Like that was the first match. That was a match. great little two months of just great stuff between Sean and The Undertaker, which years later laid the groundwork for you know again some of the greatest stuff that you will ever see. Two guys that uh, two other guys that ran parallel to each other, right? That again. didn't touch for you know five, six, seven years yeah. that they were in the, in the same company together. Yeah, the, the groundwork that it laid to their careers that brought us to what would end up being the end of Sean's career is kind of late, you know, lends itself to the original like point of just sometimes it's just simple to just, here's my story. Here's your story. Let's get in the ring and let's just tango, man. Yeah. And, um, you know, you take any three of those guys and you could have done that, you know, you did it in about two thirds of that aspect. 
here. Um, but uh, yeah, you've got you know you've got you've got Sean who um, at this part of the match or at this part of you know you know 1997 he's he was kind of in limbo again that fight in Hartford broke out and he kind of wasn't really of on TV regularly he was kind of just a he'd pop in and out yeah you know whatever his deal was he had his little knee injury or whatever whatever we want to call it and in some ways that kind of freshened his character up so when he was introduced here it did sweeten the pot a little bit. so in other words you're telling me that he actually did find his smile um <laughs> he probably found it um you know when he <laughs> actually he probably was far from finding it at this point but um you know i think he ended up being the winner of sorts i think in the rivalry between him and brett you know looking ahead um given how both of their careers played out moving forward but History, history would certainly play, you know, certainly favors Shawn Michaels better, better than it does Brett. And as a Bret Hart guy, um, you know, looking at it historically speaking, I, I will go on record as saying that, you know, on most, on any all-time list, if you have Bret Hart ahead of Shawn Michaels, you're inaccurate. Sadly, um, Shawn Michaels would definitely be higher up on any, any reputable list. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think I'll... Brett's not far behind, though. No, no, exactly. I think, you know, if Bret Hart got the opportunity to have a 2002 run like Shawn Michaels did, then he's then he's like he, then he's then he's ahead of Shawn Michaels. But unfortunately, Brett didn't get that opportunity. I know we're kind of like on a, you know going in a lot of directions here, but you know their um, you know their rivalry. This is an important part of their rivalry, and I think it it was good to look back on to get to Montreal, and then obviously Montreal took itself. You know, into another direction, but and that's not a topic that hasn't been spoken of before. <laughs> Says no one ever, but uh, I don't know if I'll uh, I'll want to get into that discussion because I think that's just been talked about too much. Well, well, you know, to fast forward all the way up to you know the end of Sean's career, it was really cool as a fan of both of them, and obviously a fan of Brett. The reconciliation, that. yeah, the yeah. closure, and yep. you know what? And again, the WWE collection. You know, and all the other stuff. They, they have there. that on there, by the it's, way. It's very much about their work, their body of work. Versus, yeah. You know, and I've, I've, you hear both of them say it nowadays, like, so much of our careers are defined around that one night. When in, in, in reality, their careers were much more than both of that. Than yeah. That night, you know, both, for both of them, that is. So, like I said, Sean had the opportunity to do more afterwards. Unfortunately, Brett didn't. But, um... You know, I was really curious, you know, I... I, when when Brett got screwed, and I'll just this is the only time I, on this at least on this episode I'll I'll talk about the screw job. When Brett got screwed, I had a hard time realizing Brett would not be in the WWF because he was so ingrained into the WWF for such a long period of time that when he when he had left months later and he was part of WCW and didn't really do a whole hell of a lot there. Excuse me. I had a I. How appropriate that a few months later, I had a hard time picturing him in the present day Attitude Era, like during the WrestleMania 14 build, you know. But at the same time, I also would have been intrigued to see what he could have done during that time period. The same character, 
You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, it, how cool would it have been to see a Bret Hart, Steve Austin post WrestleMania 14 for the title? You know, maybe even maybe even Bret and Vince kind of aligning together if they had that Mr. Yeah. McMahon character and and Bret representing the old guard and what Vince looked for in a champion. Like, I thought that I think that would have been some really intriguing stuff. Oh yeah. Um, looking back on what you know, obviously hindsight being 2020. 20, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and play fantasy booker, and I refuse to do that on this show because this show is all about fan perspective not what my opinion is based on what i read on the internet but uh yeah I, i've always been really intrigued like had the screw job not happened um how 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 long brett would have lasted this incarnation of brett in the attitude era but like i said by the same token watching the attitude era how would he have really lasted i think he would have he probably wouldn't have made it to the end of the Attitude Era. Mm -hmm. um, and that would have been fine. Because yep. at that point, he, he had, had a long run. 25 years. Yeah. Um, so he would have been a guy who would have probably taken, I know that the term's always been the Babe Ruth role. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? He would have been that stalwart that you could plug into a card to boost a house. Yep. That, you know, Bret Hart versus... Jeez, uh, I mean, pick a guy from the Attitude Era that you yeah. could have really Bret Hart and Mick Foley. Yeah, you know that's just an offhand. Bret Hart and The Rock. Bret Hart and The Rock. You could have yeah. just done so much where he's pretty much a walking championship based on everything he's done. Yeah, or beating him is almost. He would have been what Undertaker is yes. now. Yeah, he, he would, back then he would have been what Undertaker what is Shawn now. What Shawn Michaels was yep. towards the end, yep. of, um, where it was just. You could have done like he the status quo legend that yeah. everyone universally respected, you know, or what I think John Cena is becoming now. It's right? yeah, the, the the face that runs the place. Mm -hmm. He would have been that guy, and uh, it would have gotten you through two thousand one, and uh, it would have, you know, been good stuff. Yep, um, for sure. It wouldn't, okay, wouldn't be vintage Bret Hart. No, no, no. You know that that's life. That's what happens, and. Uh, you know, I was more concerned with, you know, Brett's departure after this as being, you know, to me, I was, well, with my bias is this is the best guy in the business. So you're putting him on the, on in WCW, like, I thought it was doom and gloom for WWF when he was gone. To me, it was, of course, he's going to, he's, he's the top guy in WCW. Like he's going to beat up Hulk Hogan. He's going to beat up Ric Flair. He's going to beat up Sting. That was one I always wanted to see. Yep. Um, you know, and then they, they I mean, they did what they did. Um, so that again, just life works that way. Yeah. One guy wins, one guy doesn't, and it's really no one's fault. Um, I was glad though he came back with the reconciliation. He kind of got that moment to to um, have a proper send off, I guess you would say. Like there was some closure with the screw job. There was closure with Michaels. Um, you didn't last remember him because of the screw job or even the concussion that he had gotten with Bill Goldberg. Um, I was I was. As, not, as much as I'm not a big fan of Brett now personally these days, and that's another topic for another time, uh, I was glad that he was able to to get that nice, you know, send-off goodbye, so to speak, um, back in 2010 when he returned and really patched things up because, oh, here we see a attempt at a superplex Undertaker slipping off the top rope there. Look at this. This is impressive. You fucked up. You fucked yeah. up. <laughs> That's impressive, though. For a guy Undertaker's size and Brett, like, 
I always like Brett's superplexes when he superplexed the guy off the top the rope. The one was the one with Owen off the top of the cage. In SummerSlam? So, oh, God, yeah. That's such a great match. That's my, that's my, in my that's opinion. The best cage match, I think. Yeah, at I. Least in my lifetime. We did a list on the Ken Reedy show recently of, of like, top five greatest matches of all time, greatest promos. We did a Mount Rushmore. You know, we just kind of, we called it the list episode and we did listed off different things. And, uh, Brett Owen is in my top five of greatest matches of all time. In my opinion, it's up there with Sean and Taker. It's up there with Steamboat and Savage. It's up there with Hogan and Andre. And the fifth match out of that was flair and steamboat from, uh, the shy town rumble in 89. Yeah. Uh, not to get too off topic here as we're just kind of going in all different yeah, well, kinds of oh, what's about to happen here I, I remember this well i'll kind of let it play out but again like this was the move man you know before it was considered controversial and you know a screw job finish to lock someone in a sharpshooter and and you know have someone call for the bell what's about to happen here is somewhat historic is that no one and i know i think jerry lawler or somebody in the commentator mentions that no one ever kicked broke, out of the sharpshooter out of the sharpshooter yeah ever and that was kind of like a moment I remember watching back going like, wow. Like, because when you... When it was logical to think he was going to win this match the whole time. But at that moment, a seed of, of doubt was planted. Like, You're talking about Brett or Undertaker? Brett. Okay. A seed of doubt was planted that like, yeah. oh my God, he might not win. You know, and while it seems logical and all pieces are in place for Brett to take home the title, he just, the Undertaker just pushed him out of that sharpshooter, which historically no one has ever done. So... Um. Yeah, I just remember that being a moment in the match. That's why I wanted to po- point it out. But um, obviously that's not the way it ended. Um, and then I think yeah, he goes for the tomb. No, no, no tombstone. And then my favorite move of all time, almost. Well, no, he, he does the ring uh, around the ring post. The ring post figure four to me. I like if I was a worker these days, that would be my finish without a doubt because this is cool too the ring post yeah, sharpshooter yeah that's right he didn't do a whole lot of this he did the figure four but guess what it made based off of what just happened that is brilliant you know what i mean he he pushed out of my sharpshooter well he's not going to push out of this yeah when you i got him I mean? wrapped around the ring pole he's yeah stuck here you know what i mean that was that was that was just very psychologically savvy and here we see the turning point now brett thrown into michael's courtesy of undertaker Oh, that knee of his. Yep. The same knee that he lost his smile with. And now sure the chair. That's probably the other knee. Oh! That's a fine. That was textbook chair shot to the head, 1997. Certainly don't see that these days, obviously, with the uh, the issue with uh, concussion. But how far we've come, though. You didn't see a lot of that even then. That was kind of the beginning of that, of just, like, gratuitous chair shots and just... You know, to the head, especially. Yeah. Um, like this was the beginning of that. So look, we it was we had a nice little 20, 15, 20 year chunk of the chair shot being a go-to move. Here we see Brett and Sean arguing over the count. Oh, smoking gun right here. What is this? It's like he lost all of his sense as a wrestler, and now he's a ref. <laughs> yeah. And he just doesn't know. Like, what is this? Yeah. What is this? Because I never used Listen one of those here. before. You can't. That was all you. Like, and Brett is just like, really? Really? And there. Yeah, the ultimate you. fuck you right here. Oh, yeah. spit to the face and boom. 
you know, chair shot. Oh. Music to everyone. I was like, what the fuck did he just do? Shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> One, two, three. three. Oh, man. I just remember being like, oh, my goodness. Like, what the hell happened? Because he, he didn't show bias towards Brett, obviously, but he hit Undertaker with a chair. So I felt like aside from Undertaker obviously wanting revenge, what kind of repercussions was Shawn Michaels going to have to endure yeah. from his actions? Like everyone knew Undertaker was going to try and get a piece of him. And eventually, obviously, sure. he did. But I felt like, OK, he followed the rules and he wasn't biased to Brett, but he tried to fucking take Brett's head off. Look so shouldn't he be punished for that? Him. Look at him. After that chair shot, he's up and walking. If this is 2018, the internet is like, oh, he no-sold that. Yeah. Way, to, way to sell a chair shot. Yeah, Taker, Taker should just retire, for yeah. Christ's sakes. Burying, burying the chair shot. Yeah, ba- <laughs> Another thing that you don't see in wrestling these days is the amount of heat that a bad guy will get and the, throwing trash. the garbage. Yes. The garbage in the ring. You don't see that nowadays. No, you don't. People weren't afraid to get thrown out of wrestling events back in 97. Nowadays, you throw something into the ring, you're petrified getting kicked out because yeah. the amount of money you just spent on a fucking yeah. ticket. For Christ's sake, you, you dress up as the macho man and you cause too much commotion and they, they, they kick you You can't out. even wear a Hulk Hogan shirt if you're in camera view. Otherwise, yeah. they're going to toss you out because yeah, exactly. Hulk Hogan's still a dirty word yeah. in the but WWE. You know, you know, back to here, though, like I said, this was just like the moment of vindication, like... You almost reveled in being the bad guy, even as a fan like myself, where it was like, yes, like, here we are, like, finally, almost a year since his return, a year and a half since he had last had the championship, all is good in the universe here. Bret Hart is the WWF champion, and you knew what was on the horizon, you knew a Shawn Michaels match was probably in the cards, maybe even a Steve Austin match or a, a rematch of The Undertaker, but it didn't matter because... The real champion was crowned here, and it wasn't a debate anymore. He got it, and again, hypocritically, he he won it, you know, unfairly. But he was, you know, what it was. It was almost like him going, you know, what if we're, if the rest of the world's gonna play dirty, so am I, <laughs> and I'm gonna accept it. There's the replay, Sean Nalen Undertaker. I just remember when this happened you know for you you felt vindication that that brett had finally gotten the championship that especially he, with his man sean having to throw the count because it was like you know he didn't want to do that sean, yeah exactly but for me as a fan i was upset because i liked sean michaels as a good guy and because he screwed undertaker i was like conflicted you know i respected undertaker and enjoyed watching undertaker but the people weren't happy with Sean and I was like, but the people aren't happy with Brett and I wanted to see Brett and Sean good guy versus bad guy. You know what I mean? I was still, like I said, as much as I was viewing the product in a more sophisticated manner in 1997, I was, there were still some parts of me that were still stuck on that good guy versus bad guy element watching wrestling. But as good as the undertaker, uh, Sean stuff was following this, it took me a little time to warm up to not only seeing the two of them wrestle each other, but Shawn Michaels as a bad guy. And then, of course, he morphed into the, the role with Triple H yeah. and DX. And then he was, you know, I, w- I mean, I was always a Shawn Michaels fan through and through, but um, I was just having, I had a little diff- 
there's times when even nowadays I'll have some difficulty in accepting certain things. I won't be like everyone on the internet will go bitch and fucking complain and try and hijack a show, but I'll warm up to things creatively right, right, right. In, in hopes that, you know, there's a bigger end game that I would be more pleased with as a fan. Yeah, and as we're, we're, we're watching here, you know, the, the Heart Foundation minus Jim Anvil where, you know, God, where did, what happened to that guy? Oh, you, did know? you hear about, did you, not to cut you off, but did you hear recently? He's, Alzheimer's. Yeah. Um, I never knew that. That's terrible. That's unfortunate, yeah. I just hope he gets his just um, due into the Hall of Fame. We're going off the air here with the show, but the one thing that I liked and I probably appreciated most about the Hart Foundation was, like, the family aspect of the group. You know what I mean? We come from a big family. Not that I would compare ourselves to the Hart Foundation in any way, but, like, there are, you know, there is a family element to this to this. Uh, Faction. My friends used to call you Little Owen because you had the blonde hair and yes. you were the youngest of the family. You know, you were Little Owen, and they didn't call me Brett, but you but know, yeah, like there was, you know, and, we, and people used to joke like, "Oh, the Rosenbluths are the Hearts." You know, right. at least my friends did. Right. You know, and, and you know what? There's something that's to be to be said for that. You know, and again, back to the the theme I've, I've I keep circling to is the, the tribal aspect in it. The, you know, it was a family affair with the Hearts, and you know, that's another way that you connected with them is that they're brothers. You know what I mean? And, yep. and, 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 you know, I know you, you, we hear all oh, like brothers don't fight. Well, you know, that's right. They did. And then they don't. And it was really cool to see that these guys could come together and, you know, based on their common mission and, and, and fight for what they believe in. And again, coming from the large family that they were publicized to be, you know, I just always liked that aspect of the heart family because we're all a family and, you know, or have, you know, some semblance of family that we attach ourselves to and it just made them more of a appealing people to for me to go yeah yeah that that's what it's all about like these the, you know the guy won his title he was in the match and they stuck together as a unit and you know i think you know the theme with that is just that you know the you know that family stick together and you know that was personified with the heart foundation for sure very well put and uh that'll about do it here for our premiere episode of kicking out at two i'd like to thank you all for tuning in to this special SummerSlam 1997 watch along i want to thank you justin for joining me on this premiere episode of kicking out at two and we're going to stick with the SummerSlam theme next week because we're going to do what we'd like to call our trading places series where we're going to analyze this SummerSlam, but reverse the decisions and we're going to see what kind of an impact that would have had on the landscape of wwf at that time so next week, we're going to discuss this event in long form and discuss decisions that could have happened. Reverse the roles a little bit, if you will. With that being said, I am Dave Rosenbluth. Thank you all for tuning in to the premiere episode of Kicking Out at Two, and we will see you next week.